This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, one and all, to episode 21 of Through the Years, the podcast where two men and occasionally a guest go through Ring of Honor's history, show by show, from the beginning. As always, I'm Trevor Dane, joined by uh, all, joined by always is what I was going to say, but I should have said joined as always by Matt Feuerstein. Matt, no retakes. Yeah, I um I when you first said two men and occasionally a guest, I thought you were starting to say two men and a Cajun, and I was like, <laughs> is the frugal gourmet on it? No, no, not the frig- not the frugal gourmet. Who is who is the Cajun that the Cajun? Cook. Emerald Lagasse? Well, him, but there was another one. Like, the one was like, oh. I guarantee that guy. Anyway, um, might have been the Frugal Gourmet. Frugal Gourmet was a pedophile. Fun fact. <laughs> uh, I guess that, never mind. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, um, anyway, it, it turned out it was actually Lash LaRue that you were talking about. So, <laughs> it's, it's all good. Anyway, hi, how's it going? Uh, pretty good. So we do not have any um, news for this episode, so we'll get right to the show. But first, as always, we want to plug the great – we couldn't be doing this podcast without our partners at the Place to Be Nation Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. Every episode I try to spotlight a specific podcast, and I think – I did. I failed to mention this when it was timely, so I greatly apologize. But the podcast I just started listening to yesterday, the first half of, is the Bruno San Martino special on the network, which is done by all the guys from the Titans of Wrestling podcast. It's basically like a mini reunion. And it was really interesting because there's obviously been a lot of content that's come out after Bruno has died. And, you know, a lot of it's from people that maybe didn't really watch a lot of his work, that just appreciated the man and his historical value. But those, since uh, Titans of Wrestling was a podcast mostly about pre-Hulkamania WWF, the, these are people that actually, for years before he died, have been, like, watching and appreciating Bruno's footage. So there's a real, I think, warmth to that podcast and, like, a personal nature to it that you don't get from a lot of the other remembrances of Bruno. So... I would highly recommend that, actually, if people want to hear more uh, Bruno content in the month after he's passed. Yes, it was excellent. Also, the, the the Cajun cook's name that I was thinking of is Justin Wilson, and he would say, I guarantee. I completely forgot, and that's that's a shame for me because when I was a kid, I watched a lot of cooking shows because I was a weird kid. As far as I can tell, there was no scandal or horrible revelation about him later in his <laughs> life. Well, maybe he added too much salt to something once or twice. You don't yeah. know. There could be all sorts of skeletons in that Cajun closet. True, true that. So, something that was less scandal-plagued is Ring of... Well, <laughs> no, 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 bad segue. Do, no, should, no, I edit, should I edit that out, or was... Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, it was too vague to be offensive. So, uh-huh. um, coming up is the 21st show Ring of Honor ever did, our show tonight... Wrestle Rave took place on June 28, 2003, at the lovely confines of the Murphy Rec Center, as usual, in Philadelphia, in, fun, in front of what Dave Meltzer reported as the usual packed house of 450 people. Um, first thing I want to note, Matt, what I love about uh, Wrestle Rave 
apart from some of the good things that happened on the show was that the DVD cover and how a lot of sites reference this, the show is wrestle rave. Oh three, as if this was going to be the first of many wrestle raves when in fact it was the only wrestle rave, but I like that, that ambition that this was going to be, you know, wrestle rave. Oh four wrestle rave. Oh five wrestle rave X seven. There was going to be some good ones. Um, well, you know, every wrestler dreams to have their wrestle rave moment. <laughs> um, I, I as, as I mentioned on the last show, I was just waiting for this entire show to see if anybody had the title line, the titular line, if you will, <laughs> to this event. Um, I'm so tired of all this wrestle rave, something like that. I don't know, but it was it was the biggest wrestle rave I've ever seen. So whatever, however many there were, this one was probably the best. I'm going to say, as someone that did not ever attend a rave, but probably walked outside a few, this is the only rave I've probably ever seen, which is very sad. Yeah, um, I, well, this this one is a wrestle rave, so it's kind of different from other raves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, I guess, to bring up before we talk about the show proper is that this is June 28th, so it's interesting to note that it's probably pretty hot in the building again. I mean, I don't know the weather on this particular day, but... Definitely at this time last year when we were reca- uh, recapping shows, Heat did play a factor, especially in crowning a champion where they brought out the giant fans and Loki apparently lost 10 pounds of water weight in one match. Maybe the new lights have air conditioning coming out of them. <laughs> I did notice that Steven D- the ring announcer Steven DeAngelis was just wearing a t-shirt and not a suit tonight, so he came somewhat prepared. Yes. He was going to go casual. Um. As, as has been recently the case as well, there were a few um, pre-show matches that Ring of Honor sticks at the end of the release. We're not going to cover them, but I can tell you the results. Um, Benny Blanco, one of Homicide's New York crew, defeated Lit from Special K. Hydro, the, the future Jay Lethal, defeated Angel Dust. And the Christopher Street Connection defeated the Outcast Killers. So did not see those matches. I'm sure they were wrestling matches. They took place within the ring. <laughs> uh, we start pro- now. We start the show proper with low key backstage, and dressed as w- in what I can describe as low key casual, or I guess low key, low key. He's just in a basketball jersey. His arm is still in a sling. He's still injured. Low key thanks the fans for all their well wishes and explains where he got hurt, which was in a match with with Flash Barker at the FWA Ring of Honor co promoted show in England. Key says Barker sent the invite to come to England, and now Key is extending the invite for Barker to come to Ring of Honor, which is not going to happen. Um, when he was saying that he thanked the fans for a speedy recovery, I wondered if there was like a, a letter, like writing address that I missed, where people could send like get well wishes to Loki, because or was he just like did people just like wish him well on the street? I, I don't know not- when, when it happened. Not since when Hogan got squashed by Earthquake has there been this many cards written to a wrestling personality like, low-key, please come home. (laughs) Um, So anyway, low-key then puts over Ring of Honor, and specifically he calls out BJ Whitmer, Matt Stryker, CM Punk, and Colt Cabana. Uh, Key calls them the new breed, so I wonder if this is... Ring of Honor has at this point entered their new generation phase. No, it's the new breed, so like they are are (laughs) from the future. They're literally they are literally from the year two thousand and four. Back in time, <laughs> one new year. Better breed than bad breed. Yes, true. 
Um, Actually, no, is, no, I think uh, Bad Rangers might have been better, but at least, uh, <laughs> but I mean, they they aren't alive. That's oh no, wait, Ian Rotten's alive. Ian Rotten <laughs> yeah. is alive. I got them mixed up with Axel Rotten and Balls Mahoney, the tag team. Yeah. They are they are uh, neither of them are alive. Not not a one. It's very been, it's very it's very unfortunate. This show has been morbid. Off to a, it's off to a very morbid start. Um, it's very sad. It's a very sad <laughs> podcast. <laughs> He, so he says he'd like to be tested against any of the new breed. He turns his attention to Dan Moth, saying that Moth thinks joining the prophecy will lead him to the promised land, when it will really only lead him to low key, and Key will show Moth no mercy. Which was not a bad line, you know, the promised land line. Key says that the prophecy will never have a place in Ring of Honor, which sounds a little weird given that they've been in Ring of Honor now for over a year, and Key has not been able to stop them, even though that was one of his promises. For 2003. Didn't even, Key, really, didn't even really try that hard. Yeah. Key then moves on to probably one of the reasons why he's not trying hard. Julius Smokes saying that Homicide has worked long and hard to get where he is. And he doesn't need Smokes bringing, bringing him down. Key says the streets don't belong in Ring of Honor and neither does Smokes. And then Key finishes this point by turning his attention to Samoa Joe. He says Joe has proven to be a fighting champ. But he reminds us that in 2002, he beat Joe in Joe's very first Ring of Honor match. Key says he is returning to Ring of Honor in August, and time has just made him stronger, faster, and hungrier. And then he says all his catchphrases, and that's about it. Do you notice how Loki like, makes weird faces when he cuts promos? Like he, like, I don't know, like crunch, crunches up his face as he says things. It's, it's strange. He's still not good at those at this point. Not good yeah, at promos. This- this felt like one of those 2002 Christopher Daniels promos where they've given him like five different topics to talk about and he has to just go bullet point by bullet point. And I would say I expected worse. This wasn't terrible, but he's certainly not Christopher Daniels at just going from point to point to point. But, you know, I grading on the low key curve, this was fine. And he he did, definitely did have a lot of things to talk about. That's true. He had a, there was a lot of content to the promos. <laughs> King of backhanded compliments, Matt Feuerstein, everybody. <laughs> um, we cut to Rob Feinstein. I think that was a that was a backhanded compliment. How ironic! That was a forehanded compliment, my huh. friend. Huh. Um, we cut to Rob Feinstein backstage, minute, mid funny anecdote, where we hear him say, "So the cop said, didn't you see the arrow back there?" And I said, "Arrow." I didn't even see the Indians. Gabe, who's behind the camera, gives a very lackluster, hesitant sounding, uh, that's great, Rob. And he, But he, Gabe wants to know what promos to tape tonight. Rob starts the list with Homicide, but before he can continue, Simply Luscious barges in and interrupts. Rob is wondering why she's here now that the group is d- disbanded, and Rob specifically mentions that C.W. Anderson and Michael Shane are, quote, out of here, unquote. Lesha says that she wants to work tonight and brought her gear. Rob says they could use someone selling programs, but she's not booked. Lesha says if she isn't booked tonight, she's going to tell Steve Carino and that Ring of Honor hasn't seen the last of her, Steve, CW, or Michael Shane. Rob ends by telling Luscious to call Steve in Japan, and Luscious runs off to do just that. Rob calls out, oh, Iceberg isn't here. You can't work him. See ya. This was Rob at his most over-the-top, I would say, in front of the camera, Matt. This is by far the most character work we've seen from him yet. And, um, man, it's, this character is money. 
Yeah, and um, it's interesting that one racist they, joke. They, perfect, good way to start. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's interesting. It was interesting to me that they brought that uh, C. W. Anderson wasn't done, and obviously at this point between the last show and this show. Um, Ring of Honor must have gotten word about what Steve Carino's – I mean, I'm sure that story came out of what Steve Carino's reason for no showing the last show was. So they're they're going right back to, you know, saying this, the the wheels in motion for Carino to come back. Right. Uh, since you mentioned Gabe, uh, I we should probably mention this is the first show since we realized that the newest deep vein thrombozo is uh, Gabe Sapolsky. Um, so first of all, thank you, Gabe, for listening. I know this is. I know that you're a very busy man, and this is probably a very poor way for you to spend your time. But thank you for doing it anyway. And um, I also want to say, um, as much as we admire your uh, the booking that you did in ROH, I feel like it's speaking for myself. I'm going to continue to make fun of your commentary because it is funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think we've been very even-handed so far, and we will continue to be. Like, obviously, if we didn't like the work Gabe did, we would not be devoting hours and hours of our lives to making a podcast about early ring of honor. But at the same time, I think we're going to continue to not be afraid to criticize booking decisions or lovingly tussle Gabe's hair through audio when talking about his commentary. And yeah, but it, it was definitely cool to see that he had checked it out. Absolutely. Um, going on the opening match at wrestle rave. That was not a pre-show match. The Ring Crew Express of Dunn and Marco, Marcos, ah, can't forget that S, defeated Jimmy Cash and Prince Nana in 4 minutes 18 seconds when Marcos pinned Nana after he landed on him while he did an assisted slice bread number 2 on Cash. Um, Matt, this was, um, as Gabe seemed to think was impossible, this was the Ring Crew Express's first win in Ring of Honor. What do you think of it as a little four-minute match? This is probably the most nothing match that I could think of as an ROH opener. Like, there was nothing to this match, really. Um, you know, they, uh, they cheap shot the, the, arc, the Ring Crew Express from behind early. Um, they, I don't know, there's really just, just really not much to it. Um, like, there's, they, they really overdo it, I think, early on. With Nana and Cash, is going to win this one easily. They dominated you know, pretty quickly. It was basically a squash match. And, um, and then... You know, they, they, the Ring Crew Express start hitting their normal spots, the uh, Northern Light Suplex. They did their little, like, uh, full Nelson bomb thing. Um, again, they're talking about uh, how Prince Nana's Prince thing is not a gimmick. They're really excited about that fact. Um, let's see. The Dunn hits that gory bomb. Uh, the crowd cheers on a tag to Marcos, but... The tag to Marcos wasn't that hot anyway. Did the assisted slice spread on uh, on Cash and on the way down, Marcos splashes Nana and pins him, which I think was a pretty cool finish. I will say though that the announcers made a bigger deal about this first win thing than the crowd did. Like the announcers popped like crazy. The crowd had a pretty, eh, you know, respectful pop, but I don't think the crowd saw this as as big a deal as they tried to make it out to be. Maybe because they didn't realize that the Ring Crew Express had never won. I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, they're starting to make the Ring Crew Express more of, like, a regular tag team instead of just a joke, which I guess is cool. But this match was nothing. Yeah, I think that the Ring Crew Express, like, 
This was another show, at least in Philly, I think they're pretty over or as a cult act now. But the why one big problem with the commentary for this match was Gabe and Doug did that thing where they really oversold, oh, you know, the Ring Crew Express doesn't have a chance here. Oh, it's over. It's over. They're never going to win. And, you know, it, that completely telegraphs the finish because it's so over the top. And in addition, it's like, really? You you don't think they have a chance against Prince Nana and Jimmy Jack Cash? <laughs> But, like, it, it wasn't like they were facing the Briscoes or something, you know? I have to say, Cash was, he was built. That, that's a yeah, big dude. I, I looked up Jimmy Jack Cash, and I didn't find a ton about him, except he is listed on Cage Match as a Killer Kowalski and Slick Wagner Brown trainee. Mm-hmm. He also got a pre-show match on an earlier show against Lit, and he'd get one more dark match at The Conclusion, which is a later 2003 Ring of Honor show. And that would be it for him. But yeah, yeah, he had an impressive physique. Yeah, I'll say this about the match. Until the finish, it was the most like a 1980s TV squash match of any ROH match I've seen so far. So I guess that's something about it. Yeah, um, the Ring Crew Express kind of basically let Nana and Cash work them for a few, three minutes. And then the last minute, they hit a few big spots. And yeah, just... Not not much to it, but I I do think it's kind of cool that the Ring Crew Express is getting a little bit established. It's the first time. I mean, when you look at Ring of Honor's history with uh, wrestling students and Ring Crew and stuff, I mean, the Ring Crew Express are one of their biggest success stories that they even got any kind of like consistent foothold in the company. So yes, I agree. See them kind of getting it here. Moving on, we have Sumi Sakai taking on Alexis Lurie. Alexis Lurie wins the match via pinfall in five minutes, three seconds after she hits her inverted DDT, which was her finisher at this point. Two notable um, current women stars. Yeah, yeah, that's the crazy thing. Crazy to think this was 15 years ago and Sumi Sakai is now the first Ring of Honor women's champion. Like, yeah, I pretty de- wild. I definitely never would have saw that, seen that coming. <laughs> I mean, people did not see that coming, like, hours before the Ring of Honor show that she won started. Like, she was – I was listening to the Voices of Wrestling podcast, and when they were previewing the show, they um, they, – this is no slight to them because no one predicted this. But they were giving odds of the four girls that were left in the tournament, and they were like, the only one that doesn't have a chance is Sumi Sakai. (laughs) It was just – it turned out, you know, I mean, there's – apparently the finish looked very botched and unplanned, but – just so weird that all these years later, like you said, Larie's like very much in the public eye. She's probably feuding with uh, Ronda Rousey, and then Sumi Sakai's the first ever Ring of Honor Women's Champion. So very, very weird to find us in this place 15 years later. And and if we had recorded this this episode six months ago, we would not have known that any of this would happen. So yeah, we would have just been like, oh yeah, remember this moment? Not really. Yeah, but. Uh, I thought this was easily the best women's match in Ring of Honor thus far. I don't think that's huge praise, but I thought, like, unlike the Alexis Lurie Persephone match, where I was like, oh, this was the best women's match here so far, but that's not a huge compliment. I'll say this actually does stand, in my mind, as, like, a fun little five-minute wrestling match. Like, I felt like um, Sumi Sakai did a little bit slowed the match down a little bit too much for a match that was only going five minutes at times. But really, for the most part, it was fast-paced. It was good action. There was fun spots like a big rolling cradle. Um, Sumi Sakai, I think, did the drop kicks off the top. They didn't botch anything. And the crowd actually, like, this was one of the first times where I felt like the crowd 
really got into a women's match not as like hey you're women and trying or hey it's women doing like cat fighter crazy angle just like almost like hey this is actually kind of fun and i guess the the one thing to talk about of course anytime you talk about this era of ring of honor women's wrestling there's how was the match and how was the commentary and i feel like we are getting to the uncanny valley of women's commentary with this match and uncanny valley refers to that notion of the closer something gets to be the closer something fake gets to being real the more you notice like the imperfections and i would say that about all the women's commentary so far that we've railed against gabe and doug mostly gabe have been very misogynistic and drooling and but so over the top that even though it's worthy of criticism and gross it's like also almost like jerry lawler squared and you can you can't really take it seriously i felt like this match gabe took it more seriously but still had to slip in his like Alexis Larie's hot and has a flat tummy stuff. I mean, so, yeah, the the West one was like uh, Gabe was like the cr- it's nice to see how much a, the crowd appreciates this. Just like it's nice to see Alexis Larie's belly. Like okay, <laughs> now that's weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it got to the point where in some ways this actually creep. Even though he did less of those comments in this match, it creeped me out more because it, it almost and rather than it just being complete shtick, it almost felt like he was trying to call this match and occasionally just got too horny to control himself, <laughs> which, which, which is creepier to me than just you doing a bad Jerry Lawler impression. But yeah, I thought it's weird. You know, women's wrestling is in such a weird place in the U S indie scene at this point, because there are so few women that are getting the work regularly. I think a uh, recent episode of, I forget, it might've been, um, between the sheets, Ashley was talking about this era. You know how many, how few really talented women were in the scene that could work against each other. And until Dave Prezak comes along with Shimmer, there's not really a place to kind of gather all these disparate, like spread out ta- women with a little bit of wrestling talent and let them get experience again with each other. But instead, you get things like this, where it's just like every card. It's Alexis Lurie versus the one woman we managed to bring in for the show it's it's so it feels like such a niche which i guess is what it is at this point yeah and um now the like i would agree with you about the match by the way i thought it was really good like if if for what it was you know it's still like the you know the downside is it's a woman's match so they weren't going to give it more than five minutes and i think the way the the execution of the moves and stuff i think could have led to a really good match um was anyone anywhere doing like full length women's matches in america in 2003 like where they would get to have like a twenty minute match and like do all the drama and ups and downs that men's the top men's matches did. I, I you know there there's probably an exception, but off the top of my head, I can't think of it. And again, I think it was really when Dave Prezak started booking women more seriously, when he had a hand in the booking of IWA Mid South, and when he you know went on to form Shimmer. Shimmer, which That's was why- Shimmer, which was like starting like what oh six. Some, sometime around there and I it really was like that's the reason why Dave Prezak is so revered you know in that place in, in wrestling history is he really opened a door like he created a place that these women did not have and then that started to catch attention yeah so I, I, I think I, I assume that most promotions at best had this kind of where it was almost treated like a minis match or a hardcore match where we talk about how Gabe has all these this a lot of variety on the cards at this point, but it's all mandated. Like there's always one scramble and always one four way and always usually one like bloody brawl. It was like 
the women's match was just another niche to fill, you know, another box to check off. Like Alexis Lurie's going to wrestle a woman tonight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, luckily it worked out. Yeah, um, it definitely did. In this, I mean, in I, this I, case, yeah. This is the, this is the first time, by the way, that I would really say like Alexis Lurie was felt like she lived up to the hype they were giving her because you know they would give her all this hype about how amazing, what a great athlete she was. We never got to see it really at all until this. And um, it was also a redemption for Sumi Sakai because was, wasn't the last time we saw her in 2002 she was wrestling, was it um, Simply Luscious or Allison? I think it was Simply Luscious. It might have been Allison Danger. I forget. But that was a really terrible match. That was one of the worst matches of the first year. And so it's nice to see like Sumi Sakai even had a fun little moment where she almost did like a pre-Daniel Bryan I have till five spot where oh, yeah. she's, she, she's grabbing at Lurie's face and like I guess – fish hooking or something we can't really see and the ref tells her to stop so she just switches to the other hand and the ref tells her to stop and she just keeps switching back and forth the hands before he can do a five count and i thought like that's very you know danielson-esque and that's a like a fun character spot that you weren't again you weren't really seeing those kind of spots in these early ring of honor women's matches where where there was actually some personality and and flair again like the rolling cradle and stuff like that yeah well when she yo that was awesome and when when she was first um when she first had to wrestle like Simply Luscious, she probably had too much to worry about, so she couldn't really get in all that fun stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah this the the other thing about the commentary I'll mention is Gabe also kind of goes in the other way where he talks about like this is proof that th- these matches are just as good as the men's matches and stuff like that, and that comes a little again i always think that comes off to me as a little bit patronizing i know you're trying to put over the matches but ring of honor fans are hyper aware that wrestling is like predetermined and booked out so the idea that like you only give are giving them five minutes the second from the bottom like if you really believe that women's wrestling at this point was just as good at men's it'd be getting more time in a more prominent position yeah but, i would agree with that oh and did you spot the uh the Gabe and uh, Doug Byrne on uh, our old friend Donnie B, 2002 Ring of Honor, ca- Ring of Honor commentator Donnie B, where Gabe says at one point he's going to try to not butcher Sakai's name the way Donnie B did last year. And Doug says it's pronounced Sakai. And then Gabe says someone tried telling Donnie B that. Did, did you go back to check what he called it? Because I don't remember how he no, messed it up. Uh, no, no, I did not. But I just – like, yeah, of all the things I complained about Don, Donnie B about, I don't think I complained about that one, but it's funny that that, like, a year later, that stuck in Gabe and um, Doug's head. Yeah, I, uh, I, yeah, that is weird. I, there's plenty of stuff to complain about Donnie B about, like you said. So that is funny that they decided to dredge up his name for this, of all things. So anyway, um, this is like a, again, I would say... Nothing like that's worth going out of your way to see, but if you get this DVD or find a way to acquire it through the dark web, um, you should watch this as a fun five-minute curiosity to see like an early example in Ring of Honor of an actually like entertaining, good women's match that the crowd enjoys. That's like for the merits of the wrestling. Yeah, it's, it's an easy, short watch, and it's very good. Yeah. Um, Next up, we have another backstage sk- segment with the prophecy of Christopher Daniels, Allison Danger, and Dan Moff. Daniels says that destroying the group, which they did at the end of the last show, was maybe the biggest win in prophecy history, but now their focus is back on the Ring of Honor world title. 
Allison Danger says there was only room for one Carino in Ring of Honor. And Moff says tonight he is running on pure adrenaline. So without yet mentioning it, he's mentioned it, he's referencing the fact that his father passed away the night before. And Moff says he already beat Joe once, which is a reference to the end of the last show, and will do it again tonight. Daniels goes on to say he's going to stop the Second City Saints tonight before they become another group. He uh, brings up the tag match with Raven that he has tonight, and the camera pans to a sitting Raven who was just off camera. We didn't know he was there. His foot is propped up on a chair, and it looks has a very gnarly bruise on it, we can see. Daniels asks if Raven is going to be okay with that ankle, and the camera just zooms in on it, and then we see Raven smile a lot, not say a word, and Daniel says he guesses that answers his question. So... I don't know how Raven injured that. I assume on some other wrestling show, obviously, but it definitely looked um, screwed up. Um, going on to the next match, we have a tap out match. Chad Collier defeating Matt Stryker in 18 minutes, 18 seconds, making Stryker tap out to the Texas Cloverleaf. Um, this was originally supposed to be Matt. Do you remember? I think it was supposed to be Matt Stryker versus Tom Carter, or was it Chad Collier versus Tom Carter? Yeah, it was. It was Matt Stryker against Tom Carter. Yeah, and um, and so they 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 made the announcement during the match that Carter couldn't be there because his wife was having a baby, and actually. During the match, they actually mocked him for not showing up. They were like, "You know, you don't have to be there. You'll see the baby when you get back." And he still. So I'm hoping they were joking about that mockery, and they didn't actually mean that because that would be messed up. Yeah, he uh, gave. I think. I think. This, I'm kind of looking at my notes. Gabe says Ring of Honor officials told Carter that his kid wouldn't remember if he was at his birth or not. So I'm like, he's not going to remember it. You come do the show. So instead, well, uh, be- sorry. Oh, sorry no, I was going to say so. I assume they were joking, but there was actually a thing a few years ago. Um, there was a New York Mets player whose wife was, was like giving birth on opening day, so he missed opening day, and there was a sportscaster here that legitimately criticized him for missing opening day to be at the birth of his child. And so you never know what some of these, some of these sports guys actually think about this stuff. I, like I said, I assume that Gabe was joking about this, but who knows? And, uh, I mean, Tom Cutter, I think, had a rep maybe for occasionally missing a show and flaking out a bit. And didn't he also – I think he missed the one-year anniversary show. Yes, for a car, ac- car accident, yeah. Yeah, and he uh, he got in a car accident. Yeah, so – but it was funny. Reading The Observer to get some of the background, as I always do, Dave just wrote Tom Carter was a no-show. And I felt like not putting in the pregnancy thing, like – it gives you a complete like I felt like that was unfair. Like maybe Dave just honestly did not know at that time. I, I have to I have to imagine he didn't know. There, there's, there's, there's a, no way he wouldn't have put that in. Yeah, there's a very different connotation between guy no showed or a guy missed the show because his wife was giving birth to their child. Yeah. Um. So Matt, without the expected and expecting father, how did you think this latest chapter in the Collier Striker feud was? Well, you know that I tend to be kinder to these matches than most people are these days. Like, I just really like them. For whatever reason, they do it for me. So, as far as this one in comparison to the other ones, um, I think that, first of all, it start, It was interesting, because usually these matches, the crowd just loves it right from the beginning. They were really, they're really into the early mat work. And I didn't think the crowd was quite as hot for it as usual. But, and even like the, like on commentary, Doug like warned the viewer, like this, 
because of it's a submissions only match, it's going to be slower than most matches. So I was like, oh, that doesn't bode well. But <laughs> so so they did the usual mat work, but it felt like a little bit slower and a little bit more like grinding, which I actually thought was a good thing. And you know, like they started doing like crazy Indian death locks and stuff, and then the crowd started to get into it. Like after a few minutes, like the crowd got more and more into it as they went, which I thought was pretty cool. And you had the the you know the um. The arm, the arm work and the leg work. Like Collier was was working on the leg. Striker was working on Collier's wrist early on, and then they sort of like both kind of did both. Um, and Striker was selling early, um, and I thought the holds all looked very good. Like and like they really seemed like they were struggling, which I appreciated. Um, and Gabe was complaining about crowds uh, promotions getting crowds to chant "boring" for grabbing a hold. I didn't know if he was referring to WWE with Lance Storm. Or if he was referring to something else that was going on, because I don't. Remember- I looked up. I looked up the timing. I think this was right around when Lance Storm started the. Well, when WWE started the Lance Storm is boring gimmick. Yeah, I guess so. I guess that's what must have been what they were referring to. Although Lance Storm didn't do matches like this at all. Um, no. I mean, no one in WWE ever did, as far as I can remember. But and up to, that includes till now. But um, you know, like like Collier, I thought was the star of the match. Um, Striker, I thought was maybe a little bit more off than usual. I don't like his selling down the stretch wasn't so great. Like I told you, he like he sell he sold his leg like good well mid match, but sort of dropped it later in the match. Um, and just his stuff just didn't pop as much as Collier's did. Collier sort of got to set the pace and dominate, and he was ruthless working on the leg. And you know, Striker was aggressively fighting back, and they actually had dueling chance during the match. Like the crowd really got into it, and. Um, you know they were, they did their their chop battles and all that stuff, and uh, and Striker kept grabbing the ankle lock and you know like Collier would flip out of it and reverse into a clover leaf and Striker would get the ankle lock, and you know when Striker finally got the Striker lock the crowd was chanting tap tap tap, but Collier made the ropes and they they sort of struggled on the apron for a suplex and Collier like flipped into the ring and hit and just hit a dragon screw. And then got on the clover leaf for the tap out, and I thought it was enjoyable. I didn't think it was the best match they had against each other because I thought like it was sort of um, the balance was off a little bit. I thought Collier looked great, and I thought Striker has looked better. But I thought it was good. Like I really enjoyed it. I uh, I have not disliked one of their matches yet. I thought this was a little bit above average as a wrestling match. Uh, I still, obviously, in, of the two of us, I think am the low voter on Matt Striker, and I agree. This was not his best performance, and I say that as someone that, I mean, has not hated him but not liked him as much as you, but I agree on that. It just felt like the early points of this match was just a little too much um, your turn, my turn. It didn't feel like, to me, it didn't feel as much like a struggle as much as like, you work a submission, reverse it. Okay, now I'll work a submission, just back and forth. And when they finally did get intense in the final few minutes, it didn't feel like they had really progressed or given a reason. Like, it just felt like, all right, it's the last few minutes. It's when we get intense and get a little more action. Like, like they just flick a switch and it feels so sudden and kind of forced in that sense. But what I do, what you always go back to on these matches which is good is these guys are just very good technically like they're a, a level above you know pretty much anyone else on the roster at this point or or most guys not everyone at working the mat and working holds in terms of just the execution of them uh, i agree i thought collier outshine striker here he just had a bit more intensity like there's a moment where Stryker actually gets Collier in in Collier's finisher that has beaten Stryker multiple times. 
the Texas Cloverleaf. And when Collier escapes, there's a quick sequence where he grabs Stryker's leg and just rams the hell out of it out on the apron and kind of takes Stryker outside and works him over a bit. And that was a nice little bit of intensity, and not just intensity, but like a reason why you'd be intense. You know, hey, you just did my own finisher to me. Like, screw you. I'm going to, I'm pissed now. I'm going to rip off your leg. And I felt like Stryker for a guy where, you know, you have to remember in this storyline, he's lost already twice in a row clean to, to uh, Collier. He did get the one direct win over him in the in a four-way. But you would think that Stryker should have, who I think Stryker in the past has shown good intensity and fire, that for some reason he was very like not intense here when you would think the story of the match would dictate that he should be like, like shot out of a cannon trying to finally <laughs> beat this guy in a singles match. And... I also thought the booking of this was weird because it felt like this should have been the match Striker won. I know that they weren't planning on having this match on this show, but they were planning on having it. And I just feel like Striker losing a third match, you know, and, and one of the big complaints against Gabe's booking, one of his faults, is that he didn't pull the switch on title changes and things like that soon enough sometimes. And I feel like, you know, I don't know why they decided to do what they did, so I could be completely wrong, but it did feel like to me Another very early example of, you know, to me, when you've lost twice, the third time, when Ring of Honor's running in the structure it is, I think this was Stryker's time to get the win, and instead he never gets that win. This is, um, you know, like we've talked about this before, this is Gabe's Paul Heyman, you know, um, you know his, his his what he learned from Paul Heyman. Well, Paul Heyman just you know has the thing where the guy just can't beat one guy, can't beat another guy. Dreamer and Raven, um, you know uh, Rob Van Dam not getting not beating or Jerry Lynn not beating Rob Van Dam, um, all that stuff. And you know you think like now this will be the night and it just never happens. And you know I, I don't I don't really see the benefit of it. Like you build and build and build for years, and I guess that's cool, but. You know, sometimes you just move on with your life, and and you know it did. I think it worked well for Raven and Dreamer. I don't think it usually works that well, and I um, I do I definitely think like when you see stuff like that from Gabe, that's what that's where he learned it, and um, yeah, that's what he's emulating. I I just feel like it's a speed. You know, it does work occasionally, like you said, in things like Dreamer and Raven, but in, in a point like this, it just felt like a speed bump because um, Striker's in the midst of his in the middle of his big. Ring of Honor push, like he's going to go on and win the Field of Honor tournament that's, uh, or Frontier of Honor tournament. I always mix those two up. Field, field. Field of Honor. Ah, I, field should be associated with the baseball one, Matt. No. Yeah, well, that's yeah. what they, yeah, that's what it means. When it, back like when they started doing the baseball field thing and they called it Field of Honor, and I, I wasn't really watching much at the time, I literally assumed that they were doing a tournament on those shows, like a round-robin tournament like they actually did in the original Field of Honor. I didn't realize that it was just completely unrelated to that original <laughs> Field of Honor name. But, yeah, uh, going on, I'm just – it felt like, it feels like – this is just an unnecessary speed bump in the middle of a push. Like, okay, he's been starting to get on a winning streak. He even got that win in the four-way on Collier. You know that you're going to be pushing him more in the future. To just have him not be able to win the big one against his, like, one prominent rival so far just seems like a weird stumbling block for him. And again, I don't think anyone, even though the fans did enjoy these matches, I don't think they were clamoring for for a six or seven match year-long Chad Collier Matt Stryker feud. So, or maybe but, or maybe Gabe was. Yeah. I mean, th- that's the other weird thing is 
this feud never gets resolved. I mean, they never have another match in Ring of Honor. And Strikers, like, Collier keeps coming back for the next two or three years. And to the point where, like, he still is an occasional presence on Ring of Honor shows after Strikers, like, um, push is already fizzled out and he's out of the company. So it's, it's kind of weird because right now you would just watch the last few months and Collier just comes in occasionally and Striker's the guy getting the push and you would think, oh, well, Striker's the guy that's going to be around long term. But really, Collier gets to pick his spots and last a bit longer, actually. Yeah, I would say, you know, like, yes, Collier never cha- – Collier's position in the company never grows from what it is here. Whereas Striker's does briefly and then obviously goes falls apart completely. Yeah. Um, going up to the next match, that would be – Special K, or as I would refer to them in this match, the Special K All-Star team, because it's Deranged, Dixie, and Izzy, the three guys I think you would most like to see at this point from Special K. And they're taking on the Carnage crew, DeVito, Just Incredible, and Loke. The Carnage crew win this match in 9 minutes, 11 seconds, 9-11, never forget, uh, when, <laughs> when, when, Credible pins, when Credible pins Dixie after hitting, that's incredible. Before the match, Loke and DeVito come out, and they... Uh, they don't come out with Credible, and they get on the mic and introduce Credible. Credible gets a very good pop. I wouldn't say it's quite on the level of the crazy, one of the biggest ROH pops ever level, or at least to this point level ones that he got in Boston for his surprise, but it's still a very good pop. They sold it and, like this was a surprise here too, though. I don't know if it actually was or not, but they did sell yeah. it that way on the commentary. Yeah, that, yeah, that was, that was kind of weird, I felt, because, I mean, fans had to have had the internet, like, We'll get to it in a minute. I mean, the fans knew that Dan Moff's dad had died. So you would think they would know that Just Incredible showed up at a Ring of Honor show. But maybe he wasn't like, booked on this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're probably right, actually. Yeah, they were so- – um, yeah, so he gets welcome back, Chance. And Matt, uh, we talked, I think, a little bit privately about this match. I want to hear your complete thoughts now on what you think of uh, this match. I thought it was – like. I again, it was another match that I was surprised by how much I liked it. I've really enjoyed the Carnage Crew in general uh, for most of 2003, um, and this is kind of like the beginning of something right here. The the Special K Carnage Crew thing, like you know, they had the they had the fight at the end of the last show where the, where uh, Carnage Crew jumped them before during their mini rave. This is kind of like one of the first like proper matches against like the, like you said the All Stars, and I like the dynamic. I like the um, I like that they um, like they have the Carnage crew and they're the you know the badass bruisers who are bitter you know beating up the spoiled rich kids. I think that's great, and I think that Special K here is sort of at the peak of their powers in terms of just like being an overact as we'll see later on. And you know, Deranged is just super entertaining. You know, like Credible slapped during him, and then he goes to the camera. He hits too hard. I don't want to wrestle him. Which you know, <laughs> it's just it's good stuff. And Deranged just does all this like cool high flying stuff um, to, to, to take Credible down. Um, Loke does a military f- press into a face buster, which I think is pretty impressive. Like I, I uh, Loke is starting to do some cool stuff. Um, and it's just it's very fast paced, but there's a story, you know, like that the the the, uh, the Carnage crew just wants to beat the shit out of them, and you know the Special K they run and they hide, but they also do this, you know, they kind of um, cross them up with all these crazy big moves, and um, you know, like Deranged does a, a helo off of Izzy's back. Izzy does this crazy springboard corkscrew splash onto everybody. Um, 
Dixie uh, does like the, or excuse me, Izzy does this like double drop kick moonsault and uh, double slice bread on Loke and DeVito, like just like all sorts of cool stuff. And um, but then uh, incredible super kicked Izzy, it hit that's incredible on Dixie for the win. It just it wasn't smooth really, like so you know that takes away from it. But the dynamic was good and fun, and the energy was great. So I thought this was solid. I I I, I want to see more of it. I know that we will. I I enjoyed this. I thought I was a little bit disappointed because I was really excited because I do think I agree with you that uh, the Carnage crew have been good this year. And again, like the notion of my three favorite members of Special OK at this point all together in a six man that was really exciting to to revisit. And I, I think the two problems would be. First off, Gabe makes a point on commentary that this isn't a scramble match. This is a six man tag. And Another one of those. This isn't a scramble things. Yeah, he Gabe says that they decided to give the scramble matches a month off. The problems I think with that is one, any match special K is in, you kind of expect to be a scramble now. And two, the way they work these matches isn't that much different from a scramble. Like they still have the crazy final couple minutes where the tags get ignored. They just maybe hold to the tag rules for a little longer into the match first before they forget about them. Yeah, as as I've mentioned in the past, I don't care about the tag rules. Like whatever makes the match most entertaining is fine with me. Uh, it is what it is. That's sort of how I how I approach something like that. I agree with that, except just the fact that they're trying to create this distinction that I think is paper thin at this point yeah. between like you know this isn't a scramble match. We're taking a break. Well, it's like eighty percent of a scramble match. And the other problem I have is just. Uh, it's weird because I've said this before on the podcast, Special K are so good at stooging and getting the crap beat out of them, but they're so good at that that I then feel sympathy for them and want them to do more off, like do better in the booking, which is such a weird thing. Like I was talking to you the other day and I was saying, I think if I had to wrestle someone in 2003 and I, I could pick anyone in the world and th- I it was it, I had to wrestle a match and I had to get offense in on someone else. Someone else had to sell for me. I would pick above even like a Brian Danielson deranged because he is so good at stooging. He is so giving. Like he's not afraid to look completely inferior to the other guy. He's good at bumping, good at selling, just good at being entertaining doing it. Like he would make you look as good as you possibly could look as an uh, untrained guy. I'm getting to the point now where like I would argue that Deranged is one of the most underrated professional wrestlers who's ever lived. Like no one ever talks about him and he was like obviously he's not he's like not the smoothest technical wrestler. His offense doesn't look so impressive uh, in terms of like being devastating or painful, but He's so good at all the stuff you said, plus incredibly athletic. Um, I don't know. I think he's. I think he's a great talent. Yeah, I would. I would say like I was thinking about that too. Where one of the fun things about revisiting this stuff fifteen years later is thinking about you know what's you know what were the hidden gems or what were the things that were overrated. And I would say a surprising amount of Ring of Honor from fifteen years ago is what you thought it would be. Like if you remembered it to be good. Usually it was good. If you remembered it to be bad, usually it was bad. I would say like Deranged stands out as like one as one of the major things where he has not been appreciated. I think. I mean, and there, most guys again, I think did get their due, and for whatever reason, I don't think Deranged did. Yeah, from most people, I agree. Like you just don't you just don't hear people talking about him except for us. Yeah, and 
and so yeah, when I, you when you watch this match, like Special K is supposed to be the heels. They're uh, you know Gabe does his usual routine on commentary about how they're trust fund kids, and if they took it seriously, they'd be good and all this stuff. And you know Carnage Crew are assholes, but they're kind of babyface assholes right now because they just got just incredible and they're getting big babyface pops with him. In fact, I think this match was like the first Ring of Honor match where Carnage Crew got a Carnage Crew chant. Yeah, this, like this, this is the first Ring of Honor match where Carnage Crew, I would say, are clearly positioned as the babyfaces. Yeah, and, and so the problem was, you know, they're so vicious to Special K, and there's a moment where they beat down one of the Special Ks for so long that it basically almost turns into a hot tag scenario where it felt like all my sympathy was with Special K, even though just the face-heel dynamic should be Carnage Crew as the faces, but... I guess they're predisposed to, you know, the Carnage Crew's predisposed to beating the crap out of people, and Special K is predisposed to selling a lot and taking bumps. But, but that's that's just like the one, even though the action was solid enough, although it was, like you said, a bit sloppy, is there's just something about that that vibe that, that sometimes just weirds me out a little bit. Yeah, and, and Special K matches, spoiler alert, are always going to be sloppy. Yeah. Um, this one I felt was a little bit more sloppy than some of them have been, though. Yeah. There's also a few commentary points I want to point out. Um, first, I thought it was funny. A rare, like, snippy point. For, I mean, not snippy, but, like, usually Doug is pretty bland, not in a good or bad way. Like, he's just a very middle-of-the-road announcer. But it was funny when um, all the Special K guys were coming out. He went out of his way to call down Lit. He was like, that retard Lit. Like, Doug really had it in for Lit. Um, G- let me... Gabe um, also, also says... Gabe says... This made me laugh. That uh, Just Incredible is in Ring of Honor now on a, quote, lot more often basis, unquote. <laughs> and then shortly after, Gabe that. says, Special K has everything in life handed to them on a, quote... On a golden platter, unquote. So Gabe just a little bit off with his phrases in this match. Um, no, that's 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 even better than a silver platter. <laughs> it's a richer and platter. Finally, like the peace day resistance here. Gabe spe- says Special K is like a young Rob Feinstein. Quote, they think they can get away with whatever they want, unquote. Leave it at that. No yeah. need to add anything. So... And then we have something good to move on to, which is the Ring of Honor world title match. Samoa Joe defending successfully against Dan Moth, beating Moth by pinfall in 10 minutes, 37 seconds after hitting a dragon suplex. Now, Matt, even though I, actually I should have let off the last match, I screwed up the order. Mm-hmm. I do want you to go first because I know you're very passionate about this match. But I think first I should give a little bit of background into the story of this match. So... For people who don't know, Dan Moff's father passed away the night before this match. And apparently, I mean, I guess I don't know how the news spread, but the crowd apparently knew. Gabe, when the entrance is starting, his voice gets very somber. It's almost like what fans at the time would call the Owen voice whenever announcers got very somber. Sometimes that would be real. Sometimes it wouldn't be. Um, Gabe says that... Moff's dad was surrounded by his 16 children, 16, and all his friends and family, which I wrote in my notes that had to be a large room. So I probably shouldn't have made a joke like that, but it was just – I mean, time plus tragedy, right? It's been a long time. (laughs) 
Uh, Gabe says that tonight isn't. You made, a, you made a 9/11 joke. Let's 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 be serious. That was a time joke. Okay. Yes. Uh, <laughs> time. <laughs> time plus tragedy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Gabe says that tonight it wasn't about the prophecy or wrestling characters or anything like that. He says it's about Moff wanting to honor his father. Moff pointed to the heavens before the match. Gabe explains that Moff's dad got him into wrestling. And in, in kind of a funny um, uh, contrast to the the Tom Carter thing where Gabe joked about – I think he was joking about them telling Tom Carter – you know, you should show up even though your wife just gave birth. Here, they, they say that they tried to talk, talk Moth out of coming and wrestling tonight. Um, Joe even claps for Moth during the reintroduction. But before I hand it off to you, we have some thoughts actually from Samoa Joe himself because I went and recapped a whole segment Joe talked about this match in a Ring of Honor straight shooting release. So Joe was asked about the Dan Moth match. And Joe says that... Moth has one of the biggest hearts he's ever seen in wrestling. He comes into the locker room that day, the di- night after his dad died, with a smile on his face. Joe says he told Moth that he needed to be home with his wife and kids and his family, but Moth told him that he was with his family the whole day and that he had been there when his dad died. And Joe says from what Moth told him, his dad had a beautiful send-off with the whole family there. He was able to say goodbye the way he wanted to. Moth said that told Joe that the last thing his dad actually told him before he died was, quote, shouldn't you be at that wrestling show? Um, Joe says he had to hand it to Moff. He doesn't know if he could have worked the night after that. Joe says he knows Moff loved his dad a lot, and his dad got him into the business. He says for all of this, Moff will always have his respect, and that Moff showing up in the ring that night to wrestle him the night after his dad died was, quote, the biggest compliment everyone, anyone has ever paid him. So, pretty crazy real emotion in this match. So, it's almost weird to say how was it as a wrestling match, but Matt, how was it as a wrestling match? Well, it all, pl- it all ties together, though. You know, like, it, the, 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 the tone of the match was definitely affected by this. The crowd knew about it, so they gave Moff a huge ovation coming out, and it, it made the match better, like, which is, I mean, obviously a weird, perverse kind of thing to say. You know, like I would rather have not had that have been the case, um, but but it did. You know, um, you know, just like the level of emotion here would not. This would have just been a uh, you know a, a mid-level Samoa Joe title defense, but because of the emotion around Moff, it suddenly became something greater than, excuse me, than what than what it otherwise would have been. And yeah, you never want you never want to say someone's dad dying made this wrestling match better, but I think that's undeniably true. Like, yeah. that's a weird thing to say, but it it did. Yeah, I mean, it's a very small, um, you know, silver lining. It's the tiniest silver <laughs> lining in the history of silver linings, but it's true. And um, so, you know, right at the beginning. Um, Moff attacked Joe at the bell. And so immediately this match had the vibe of like, okay, this is going to be just fast paced, intense sprint. And it was, and that's, that's what happens. Just like, you know, um, Joe runs away to the ring, uh, runs out of the ring after being attacked. So Moff immediately does this crazy die to the outside, you know, hits his head on the guardrail, like just all all sorts of stuff. He's slapping Joe. Joe's attacking the jaw that hurt Moff. And it's just like, just like it's bomb throwing. So he, Joe misses an ole ole kick. 
Um, uh, but Moff charges at Joe, and Joe just kicks him and then puts him back in the chair for the Ole Ole kick. The crowd's going nuts. Um, just the pace is awesome. The intensity is great. Second Ole Ole kick, uh, as always. Um, of course, gratuitous chair shots to the head. Um, and I wrote, is this ECW? Because I don't know why you're allowed to do that in ROH. Just hit someone with a he- in the head with a chair during a regular title match. They didn't really say that that was okay. Um, for whatever reason, the tag rules don't bother me, but that still kind of does. Um, but um, so Joe gets actually, uh, he gets a sub- submission hold on, uh, on Moff's arm, which kind of slows it down. And the crowd starts chanting for Joe now all of a sudden. So the crowd just loves both of them. Um, Joe does a release German, but... But Moff like kind of does the no the no cell fighting spirit, which I'll allow in this because you know Moff his, his situation, um, <laughs> you know you're allowed to do that if you're uh, if you're uh, dealing with tragedy in your personal life, right? Um, um, but Moff's big moves are good. Um, his his transitions not so much, but I guess that's not the kind of match this was. You know, he hits hit, hit the corner cannonball and, and then a capo kick. And he calls for a burning hammer. Joe gets out and grabs the choke. Moff breaks it up. Um, Joe grabs a sleeper, but Moff reverses it into a backdrop driver, which I thought was cool. Um, he puts Joe on the top rope and gets him in the burning hammer position. And you mentioned this to me. Like, as he has him in the position, like, he waits. Like, like, he, like Joe doesn't immediately fight out. There's, like, a moment where he's just, like, about to get this move on. And the crowd, like, the intensity rises that much just in those, like, couple of seconds. But then Joe escapes hits a kick and a dragon suplex and gets the three. Um, I love the pace. I love the intensity. Um, love the, And this is like a Joe, the early Joe style of title match. Like This is very similar to the style of the Homicide match. It, it was shorter and a uh, little bit less drama down the stretch, but it's just like big moves, hard-hitting, hard-hitting, intense. Um, and, you know, one thing that I noticed, so we're recording this a week after Backlash 2018, and... I wanted to contrast it with Samoa Joe versus Roman Reigns um, because the matches started out similarly, like with Joe just like, you know, somebody just like throwing bombs and like just like going crazy and, and attacking. But this match, they kept it short and they kept the pace hot the whole time with big moves. For some reason in that match, they thought it would be a good idea to slow it down. To lock on a rest hold, then another rest hold. And I don't like the term rest hold, but I mean, well, I mean, what were they? I guess they were like holds to gain um, to gain sympathy for Reigns, who wasn't going to gain sympathy anyway. And I was just like, man, if they had just followed the formula of this match, that probably would have been a really good match. Um, this exact match that I had just watched would have been a great template for that. And for whatever reason, they decided to go more traditional. And I don't know. I think this match could be a lesson for a lot of like bigger guys. It's like you just do a quick match with bombs being thrown, um, big moves, and the crowd loves it. And at the end of the match, uh, the crowd gave this Moff a huge ovation, as you might expect. Um, uh, obviously, Moff still didn't shake hands because of the prophecy, but they both bowed to each other in respect. So that's mm-hmm. a, that's that's a loophole. Doug Williams could learn from that when he wasn't allowed to shake hands. Um, <laughs> but. But yeah, I, th- I mean, this obviously wasn't a match of the year candidate, but this was about as good as you could do probably for this match. I thought this match was another match. I, I-, I think I liked it less as a wrestling match than you. I thought it was solidly like I thought it was above average and enjoyable, but I thought it was there was a couple of big flaws. The first thing is I I love the opening 
going to what you were saying about this being the first of a certain kind of match for Joe, as Joe really built up this huge reputation in Ring of Honor and on the indies as a whole um, of being this the, the man and the unstoppable ass kicker, you'd see some guys which start to do this kind of idea of, all right, so my match with Joe should be short and it should just be me like throwing everything I can at this guy. And to me, I love those matches. And this is one of the first, you know, where you would expect with um, Moff, you know, getting a face reaction because his father just passed away to, you know, just do a traditional, maybe epic kind of match. But instead, he jumps Joe right at the bell because, you know, he needs to take every edge he can to beat this, you know, son of a bitch. And I really, that first minute is the best part of the match to me. It's so intense and so good. And then Joe really beats on Moff for a few minutes, and that's really good. But I felt like, so, I didn't agree that Moff's offense on his comeback w- was that good. I felt like his lariats didn't look that strong against Joe. And in this kind of match, I felt like they ne- really needed to look hard hitting. His cannonballs were good. One of them caught Joe. I think he caught Joe right in the face with his foot on one of them, which looked painful. But I just would have liked to see a bit more impactful, like really hard hitting looking um Moff offense because Joe's the kind of guy where you really have to bring your A game in that respect. Otherwise, you're going to look kind of weak in comparison. You really have to fight to to like look good against his offense at some points. And the other thing I didn't like was actually my favorite part of the match was what you described, which was when Moff gets uh, Joe on his shoulders for the burning hammer. Like we talked about, he is just, he teases those few seconds. And it's one of those moments in wrestling or in life where it's only probably two or three seconds, but it feels like a minute or more. Like you can feel the anticipation and the crowd starting to really murmur like, oh shit, he's going to hit this. And then he doesn't. And my problem was, I don't mind that he didn't hit it. You know, it's probably better for Joe's safety and to protect the move that he didn't hit it. But what I did mind was, Right after that huge moment of like, oh my God, maybe Moff can win. Maybe he's going to hit the burning hammer on a guy as big as Joe. Joe immediately just hits an enziguri and a uh, dragon suplex and it's over. Like 15 or 20 seconds after that huge emotional high for Moff, he loses in two moves. And they weren't even like Joe's big established finishers. You know, he he had been just debuted the muscle buster. He could have done that. He had started to win with a choke. He could have used that. And I felt like it was one of those weird things where if you listen to the crowd, the second after he loses to those two moves, it, it's kind of quiet for a second. And then the crowd immediately starts applauding and stuff. It was almost like, oh, that's it. And then they realized, oh, well, it was still pretty cool that we saw like Moth wrestle after this tragedy. But as as a whole thing, when you add in like the good and the bad of the match, and then add in what a like crazy thing it is that this guy wrestled the night after his dad passed away, and that idea that you know the crowd knows it, it it's just it's something I'll never forget. I think like I can't, I haven't seen a lot of Moff's work outside of Ring of Honor, but I have to think this is the most widely remembered Dan Moff match ever. At like, least, would you agree? Well, there's one other match that comes up in ROH um, a year later, um, mm-hmm. but but it's not a singles match. Um, so this has got to be like probably as far as singles matches go for sure. It it would have to be. And and you know one other element that uh, that I think is worth mentioning: Samoa Joe's only been champion here for um, what three months, 
about. Mm -hmm. So it's not crazy to think that Dan Moff could have beaten him for the title. You know what I mean? Like, it it wouldn't have been crazy. It would have been in line with what they've been doing. You know, Xavier beat Loki. Um, People didn't expect uh, Samoa Joe probably to beat Xavier at that point. Um, So, you know, if this match was held in 2004... You know, obviously, no one could have possibly thought Moff would win, no matter what his situation was. But it was perfectly plausible that Moff could have beaten Joe here, and I think that added an element to it. Also, I do think you're right that a lot of Joe matches end with, um, in the early times, like a, a, a lot of like, and they end abruptly. Um, not just this one. Um, and you know, maybe that's a flaw. Maybe it's not because um, maybe that's just like Joe's thing. Um, but I, I, I liked Moff's offense, obviously, a lot more than you did to the point where I actually noted it, that how much I liked it. So I guess that's just a difference of opinion. But I, I see what you're saying, but I, I just thought the emotion here and the style they worked was great. Like, and, and I was just really impressed with what they did with what they had to work with. And again, I don't want to nitpick because this is one of those things where it's easy for me to lay out um, things that I thought could have been done differently when actually – I think this match is, is is very enjoyable as an experience to watch. But the other note I would have too is, I think Moth could have done more roll ups to try and play off the results of their last match, where you know Joe, I mean Moth pins Joe at the end of that six man on the last show, and it, it plays up something that we've both um, praised that Ring of Honor has done, which is trying to establish that Joe has this one weakness that he's susceptible to roll ups. So I I think it would have been good for. Um, Moff to just try a few more of those because we'll just advance that story and it would have made sense. Like I beat him with this once. Let's see if I can do it again. But I think you made an excellent point too, where yeah, people have to put their, their, when they watch this in the mindset of someone, a ring of honor fan at this time, because there had not yet been that long definitive, like title run for anybody. So the idea that uh, ring of honor is this place that usually doesn't change titles quickly you know, to, for all those fans know, Rainbow might have been a place that gave guys like these sentimental wins. Moff easily could have won on this night. And again, I, I just think it's crazy that he was able to wrestle the night after his dad died. Like, I know his dad encouraged him, but like such a crazy thing. And, and it's one of those things where the crowd is sympathetic to him. And he's wrestling with a bit more emotion. And he does a lot of motioning before and after the match to like the heavens and to the mat and stuff. But during the match, like you wouldn't really know this is a guy whose dad died uh, the day before. If you had just watched the work itself, you would know the there match. was you, you would know there was a fire lit under him though, like for whatever yeah. whatever the cause was. But I mean, again, just credit to him. Like I don't know what I was expecting in that sense, but it's such a credit to him that he just did his job, you know. And this is a big match for him too. Like that's the other thing. It's not like he. Um, his dad died, and then he's showing up in the second match on a card in like a six-man tag. He's going to probably the biggest singles match of his career. Yes. You know, right after this. That, for sure. like That was already booked for him. And, yeah, just a very memorable match. And as we pointed out, after the match, Joe bows on his knees to Moth multiple times. Moth bows back. No handshake, though. They both point to the heavens. Uh, Joe leaves Moff alone in the ring to get another big crowd ovation, and then Moff walks to the back. You can hear a couple individual fans even shouting, we love you, to Moff, and I think Moff thanks one of them, which I thought was kind of a sweet moment. Again, one thing I noted, like, watching this is, it's weird how sometimes we talk Ring of Honor had such a reputation 
for not for being very dry and not having a lot of angles in the early years. And we've talked a lot about how that's not actually fright like crazily not true. Like, yeah. It's not true. But I'd also note I would say three of the most emotional moments I've seen in wrestling have all happened in the first year and a half of Ring of Honor. Um, low key of all people breaking down crying about the Haas brothers after uh, he won at crowning a champion. Um, Eddie Guerrero at Night of Champions talking about how he just learned he lost custody of his children that day. Night of Appreciation, right? Oh, Night of Appreciation, not Night of Champions. That yeah. would be wild if he was at Night of Champions. And now this. like Those are three of the most real, raw, emotional moments I've seen in wrestling. And they all happen like the first year and a half in Ring of Honor. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um they yeah and and it won't be the last like our, because like I guess you know there's more oh, there's more ability to have that realness on like a, a more intimate indie I guess than in WWE but yeah it's you're, it's a really good point like it's ROH is not dry um it kind of is now but it wasn't yeah. then and, and I think it's just a testament to they're an indie and they also gave their wrestlers some creative freedom so if something real happened like with the moth thing you would think like maybe a modern WWE would try and just ignore it like take two weeks off and don't wrestle even if you want to and then you'll come back as the heel you were I mean some might say it's a bit too on the nose when Gabe does the whole thing before the match of like you know this isn't about wrestling storylines and stuff but they didn't run away from the real emotion of the night which I think is, is a credit to them and I think something that wrestling promotions do a little more of nowadays. They run away from things if it's not in their plans a little bit more rather than just like, wow, something real is is happening here. Even if it changes kind of the set order of things, let's take advantage of that. Yeah, and they did. So um, we're at intermission, and it's Gary Michael Capetta backstage with Homicide and Julia Smokes. Gary asks Homicide about his match with Trent Acid tonight, and Homicide says that he and Trent go way back. Six years ago, apparently, Homicide says he busted Trent open with a VCR, 26 staples in his head, and then Homicide says, in a line that made me laugh out loud, but tonight it's not about VCR, <laughs> it's about tables and ladders. And I was like, I just love, tonight it's not about VCRs. <laughs> like, when else do you say that? Um, it's also, it's a little bit about VCRs. This is a home video product. Yeah. I was going to say, the only time you ever say that otherwise is if you're dating someone and you both work at a VCR repair shop. Like, you're like, honey... We're going to have pour a glass of wine. Tonight, it's not about VCRs, for once. A it was VCR a repair? How long did, How many of those have existed in the past 20 years? Uh, I don't know. There's only that one on those red-letter media movie review shows. They still act like they're a VCR repair place. So that <laughs> is the only one. But um, Gary says that Low-Key told him earlier that if Smokes wasn't at ringside for the Joe Homicide title match at uh, Do or Die... Homicide would be champ right now. Smokes obviously, is, as you might expect, is not happy to hear that. Uh, Smokes says some of his 10 or 20 different catchphrases and then says maybe if Key wasn't at ringside, Homicide would be the champ right now. So just throwing it back in Key's face. Smokes keeps doing, I said, wrote here, Smokes keeps smoking and basically challenges <laughs> Key to a fight after the show if he wants one. This is, this is a very different Julius Smokes character than he would become because later on, like, you would never see him, like, actually being willing to fight top stars. Like, they, they've, they kind of position him as more of an actual, like, street fighter and a threat here, whereas later on he's just sort of a stooge. Um, so that's, that's interesting to see. Um, Julius Smokes is very entertaining, though. I have to say that. Um, yeah, he- 
he's great at being Julius Smokes. Yeah, I will also say about this promo, I'm glad they actually had Homicide cut a promo because, you know, obviously times were different. You know, indies were much more intermingling at the time, but it's weird to have a main event where the storyline took place completely outside of ROH and suddenly there's this big, like, hate-filled brawl between two guys. And if you're just watching the ROH DVDs, all you know about it is that Trent Acid came up behind him and, sn- 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 you know, hit a Yakuza kick as a sneak attack once. You know, and that's pretty much it. So it's kind of, you know, it's good that they at least had one promo. I was wondering why they weren't doing more promos to build this up. Yeah, I was going to talk about this later, but this is probably actually a good time to talk about that, which is, uh, you you say it's more common in indies now. Actually, um, I think... I think nowadays, like in Indies, it's very normal for feuds to cross over to other federations. I think back then, it was actually more of like, this Indie is our world. It doesn't count if it happens somewhere else. Like, that happened more often. And yeah, this is is such a weird – to me, this is such a weird – change for Ring of Honor because Ring of Honor always is trying to explain stuff. And here, they're so vague. Like, even when they're talking about it. You know, they said on that other show, oh, um, Trent and Homicide had an issue in another company, but they won't say what the company was. And they said, oh, you know, they're feuding over the big Japan light heavyweight title, but they don't ever, like, they don't tell you what the issue is. They don't tell you what the company is. Yet, it's the, as you said, it's the main event of the show. Like, it's it's such a weird non-Ring of Honor thing to bring in something completely outside like that, that feels like something other promotions would do with Ring of Honor stuff. Like they would take a Ring of Honor feud and then without context have that main event their show. Is it, it feels like it's I was gonna gone. ask, is it sort of a thing where was this match like a hot match, like a touring match in other indies and the ROH was just like, We want to get some of that on our show too? Like is like because uh, otherwise I can't figure it out. I don't know. And also, um I, I think they definitely had feuded elsewhere. Like th- this right. was part but Going to something they say later, too, which is um, I thought was a little bit weird, and I don't know if I really like this. I forget it was Gabe or Doug, but they were saying something like, this feud started elsewhere, but it ends tonight in Ring of Honor. And I was like, do you guys really have the right to say that? Like, It felt like they were just trying to steal something from other promotions in a weird way, like the idea that, like, yeah, you haven't seen one step of this feud out other than maybe that one sneak attack you mentioned in Ring of Honor, and we've barely acknowledged it, but you're going to get to see it end tonight in Ring of Honor. Like, is that even a plus? Yeah, that's that's a, Like a no-context feud ender? It's kind of shady. And also because um, they didn't really have plans for singles plans for Trent Asset, like... He would still go back to being a backseat boy after this match, and he was before it. It's just this one match at this point that he gets. But I don't know. It was just a lot of weirdness about this. So we move on. We're after intermission. Four-corner survival match. Alex Shelley takes on Jimmy Jacobs, takes on Tony Mamaluke, takes on B.J. Whitmer, B.J. Whitmer wins in 14 minutes, 36 seconds, when he hits Jacobs with what they call an exploder, but really was almost more of like a cradle suplex, I would say. So this is actually, in a weird way, even though the match itself wasn't unique in how it was worked, this is the Ring of Honor debut of both Alex Shelley and Jimmy Jacobs. So Big deal. Real, yeah, a big historical value in there. And Jacobs and Shelley, they were... 
I don't know if they were quite yet at the level of like a touring match, but they were kind of um, Michigan's punk and cabana. I would say at this point, like Gabe notes that they drove together from Michigan to go to the show. They had to work together in promotions there. They would keep after this, like working each other. So they're, you know, they're the typical two guys from a, a, a out of town market that travel together and wrestle together a lot and break into different promotions together. And in fact, at one point, Gabe puts over the whole Michigan wrestling scene saying it has Shelly Jacobs, Mamaluke, Chris Sabin, and that one legged guy in WWE that's getting a lot of attention, Gabe says. <laughs> so that would be Zach Gowan. Um, Jacobs at this point is doing the Huss gimmick where he wears the furry boots and goes Huss, Huss, Huss. I'll note it's over immediately. Like the crowd's hussing from match one in Ring of Honor. They're into it. Very easy gimmick to, you know, get across to fans. Gets over very quickly. Uh, I thought this was a very typical four-way. This was, I thought maybe it was a little bit better than some of the recent four-ways just because I felt like Jacobs and Shelley had a real spark. Like they were trying, you could tell they were putting on everything they could into breaking into this company. They definitely worked a fun sequence against each other the way two guys that know each other really well can work, where maybe it's a little bit choreographed, but they just do a bunch of things against each other very quickly in short order. Everyone looked fine here. They were trying to put over everybody on commentary. I felt like they were putting over Whitmer really hard, though. You could tell he was in line for a push. And I didn't think he looked that good until the final couple minutes where he starts absolutely killing guys with great-looking lariats and his suplexes start looking really impactful. And I thought the final few minutes of this match was about as good as B.J. Whitmer has looked in Ring of Honor so far. And, you know, there's cool moments. Like, there's a big moment where he simultaneously... uh, exploders Shelly and Jacobs like they're holding on to each other and he exploders both of them together and yeah I, I, this was BJ's highlight ring of honor so far in my opinion and yeah yeah otherwise it was just again your simple regular four-way where everyone trades off final few minutes everyone comes in there's a few big near falls and it ends not much of a story or anything else uh, what did you think, Matt? Yeah, I mean, I thought pretty similarly, like the the way the Jacobs and um, Shelley stuff, like you could really tell this is like a rehearsed thing, you know, like yeah. that they that they would it's like a touring match that they had, which is fine. You know, I thought it was kind of a, a good dynamic with like you know, Mama Luke and Whitmer sort of like wore out the two guys, and then they would kind of be more even with each other. And then you know every once in a while, Shelley and Jacobs would get some big moves in on the other on them two quote unquote veterans. Um. Uh. But but yeah. I mean, it was it was fairly like I won't. I don't want to say rudimentary because obviously in ROH nothing is that rudimentary. You know, lots of big moves. But it was a fairly um, by the numbers match like this. Um. And like you were talking about how they were putting over Whitmer at one point on commentary, Gabe said that Whitmer is a guy that Bill Watts would like. <laughs> I, I I'm not, I'm not so sure. Um. But I guess you know maybe it would, who do I, what do I know about what Bill Watts likes? Um. <laughs> didn't doesn't seem that way to me. Um, I did think that um, Mama Luke's submission stuff was more over than usual. Like I thought the crowd really was was up for this match. They really were appreciative. They gave everything. At one point, there was like a double cross arm breaker or double Fujiwara armbar, I should say, on Shelly by Mama Luke and Whitner. I thought that was cool. There was one spot that I liked a lot where um, Mama Luke got like a hammerlock with a bridge on Jacobs and, J- and Shelly like 
did a splash onto Mamaluke to break it up. And what I really liked about that spot was that the camera didn't get Shelly until like the very last second as he jumped. So it really felt like it was out of nowhere. Like, and I really enjoy that when you just see someone kind of flying in to break up a move instead of anticipating it. It, it gave it, you know, gave it some extra drama there. But yeah, I, I mean, this, the big, the big thing was that at the end, um, um, where, so Whitmer, uh, does the, uh, does the exploder or whatever you want to call it onto Jacobs for the win. And at the same time, Shelly was tapping to Mamaluke. So both Shelly and Jacobs did the job, even though Jacobs was technically the one who took the loss. Um, so that's kind of funny that they both had the job uh, unnecessarily, but they got to show a lot, I would say on their debut. Like they were yeah. really given a good chance to shine. And I think they did a good job. Obviously they would become big parts of the promotion. Jacobs was 19 here. That's crazy. They're, yeah, Gabe said they were both under 21 at this point. And I think he said something like they've both only been in the business a year or two. Like he was really stressing, I get how young and inexperienced. But that's that's insane how young they were. It's They're not quite like Mark and Jay Briscoe at 17, 18 level impressive. But still, for guys that are that young, very impressive. Yeah, and obviously they were prodigies and they, you know, became great wrestlers, especially Shelly. Um, so, um so yeah, but no, but it was you know the match was fine. Um, it ha- it was noteworthy in its way. And the the only thing about that finish I thought was a bit weird. Where yeah, they tried to do the double finish almost to protect Mamaluke, except the ref wasn't looking at Mamaluke at at all. And Jacobs only started tapping once like the pin was registered for BJ Whitmer, which like, it was like, he was waiting, like, okay, we don't want to really have a disputed finish. We just want it to be kind of disputed. So once Whitmer gets like the three count, then I can start tapping to mama Luke. That, that's what she- it looked like Shelly was doing, but yeah, well, yeah, it's hard to coordinate things like this. Yeah. But I mean, it wasn't that big a deal. Again, it's a four way. It's, it's not that big a deal. The big deal was just let everyone look good for a second and give Whitmer the win, which it completely accomplished. So moving on, we have one of the big matches on the show. No disqualification, as all of Raven's matches in Ring of Honor seem to be. The Second City Saints of CM Punk and Colt Cabana with Lucy, or <sighs> Lucy Fur defeat Christopher Daniels and Raven with Alice in Danger in 13 minutes, 51 seconds, when Ra- Punk pins Raven after he does basically a, I would call it a chain-assisted neckbreaker, and then just whips him with chains for a few times. Uh, Matt, like, we've seen a few of these Raven tag matches now. We've seen him with Whitmer. We've seen him with Colt against Ace and Punk. Where would you rank this in those three now? This uh, of Raven and Friends versus Punk and Friends, Ring of Honor tags. It wasn't the best. Um, it certainly was not, you know, the worst. I... Um, I would say it was better than the one at Night of Champions. Um, I didn't; it didn't stand out to me as different or unique as the one at the night at Night of the Grudges, and I don't think it quite stood out as much as the one at Expect the Unexpected. So maybe third; it was either second or third. I would say. Um, uh, I think well, the strength of the match was that Daniels, I guess, was like kind of full babyface here. I don't know if he's officially full babyface. Period. But in this match, he totally was. Um, and so they worked it just like where they worked over Daniels until he got the hot tag on Raven and, and all that stuff. Um, but um, I, you know, I'm still impressed by how um, by how much the crowd 
um, boo CM Punk because you'd really think that he would be a guy that the crowd would just cheer because he's so interesting and charismatic. But he's really gotten them to boo him, and I like that. Um, you know, Punk calls Raven a has-been and a washout, and, and Raven pretends to take a nap in the ring. So Cabana goes for a fl- frog splash, and Raven moves. I like that. I thought that was a good first move. They did a, um, a rowboat. Uh, Raven and Daniels did a rowboat on Punk and Cabana, which you do not see ever. So I wrote down, row, row, row your boat with Rose spelled R-O-H. Um, <laughs> I love that you're making word puns in the notes for a podcast. That's so great. Yes, it's it's a, lots of puns you could do with R-O-H, apparently. Um, <laughs> I like that Punk actually blocked the chair, dropped toehold, and then picked up the chair. Uh, but then Daniels hits a chair into that chair. Um, into that Punk's, was great misdirection. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Um, but the, the storyline is that... Um, Daniels is trying to cut the Second City Saints off before they become a problem for the prophecy. Like that's sort of what the announcers are playing up. Like like he's going to get to them early before he can really they could do damage to the prophecy. Um, so Daniels is the face in peril. So he blades, but unfortunately CM Punk also blades, and CM Punk, the guy who's dominating, his blade job is eighty seven thousand times more <laughs> intense than Daniels's cut. Um, like. Like, Punk has, like, a really, really heavy-duty, gross blade job where he's covered in blood. Um, Daniels, mm, he has some blood on his face. Um, but, you know, it's, yeah, it's old-school style, and, um, you know, they're working and working and trying to get the hot tag. Um, Raven finally gets the hot tag, punches in clotheslines, big knee lift, hits the chair, drop toe hold on both guys, bulldog clothesline combo, uh, and Cabana, Cobradas himself, Onto the ref. So Raven hits the Raven effect on Colt, but the ref is down. And Lucy tries to interfere. Wait for it. Um, but Danger spears her and knocks her off the, ri- off the ring apron. And so Punk super kicks Alice in danger. Matt, and, no. Yes. That can't have happened. So like the, at, there was a point where so when Lucy was in and then like it just ended up with Danger and her fighting, I was like, oh, maybe they won't have the man on woman violence. And then nope. Uh <laughs> As intense as ever, man and woman the violence. Three continues, and as I told you privately, I feel Ring of Honor has turned me into a horrible person because after those few ref calls we had to have on earlier shows, now every time I see something like this, all I feel is relief. Like, okay, this is easy. Like, clear cut, man hitting a woman. We can mark it down. Like, I should. That shouldn't be the reaction I should be having to these moments. But it's it was like, okay, woo. But it was. He kicked her in the face. And yeah. um and so uh Angels Wings on Punk, Colt forty five on Daniels, and then another Raven effect on Cabana. Punk tag takes out a chain from Lucy's purse and um, neck breaks Raven and then whips him with the chain and gets the pin with that. So they are setting up, of course, a chain match, which Raven uh, asks for on the mic uh, after the match. But um Punk chokes Raven with the chain from the top rope after the match while Cabana makes Daniels watch. I thought that was weird because it was like, hey, Daniels, watch this. Watch the suffering of this guy you kind of know. Like, it's, you know, you know, it's it's not like he was making like Alice in Danger watch Daniels or Daniels watch Danger. Like, there was no really an established relationship between Raven and Daniels. I mean, I get it. It would still be bad. They were tag team partners and you don't want to watch someone get choked. But... I don't know. It's, it was a little bit weird, but I thought it was a sim. I would say it was a simple but effective match. I, I, it wasn't a standout, but the feud is going really well, and the crowd was into it. And man, was Punk's blade job gross! 
Yeah, I actually did think this was the worst um, Raven match so far in Ring of Honor, but I I still thought it was in, like another match I enjoyed. I just feel like the other matches have had some really inventive Raven stories, and this was more of just one note, typical, a very traditional wrestling story, which is Daniels is the face in peril. And as you pointed out, the big problem with that is Daniels does a, a, I would say like a three out of 10 blade job, just this thin little line of blood that gets wiped away by the end of the match and has stopped bleeding. And punk juice is probably like an eight out of 10, just soaking his, his blonde bleached blonde hair and covering his face and even like trying to coagulate and just disgusting blade job. And the visual of the guy, you know, where, Daniels is the face in peril getting beaten down and the visual of a guy who's just bleeding so badly beating a guy that's barely bleeding. And at one point, Gabe's even like, I don't know if Daniels can handle the blood loss. And (laughs) he's getting beaten down by Punk, who's losing eight times more blood than Christopher Daniels. That, you know, that's one of those weird going to before we're saying how I just said Ring of Honor, you know, took these real moments and didn't shy away from them. I kind of have to eat my words because this was a moment where they took something that was real and because it wasn't in their plan, you know, that they, they couldn't acknowledge Punk's really bad blading blade job is blood. And but they had to acknowledge Daniels because that was the whole story. I mean, was Punk supposed to bleed at all? Like, I, it's, I could, I'm not even sure. I don't remember the moment where he got busted open. I think he was supposed to. If he was supposed to, that's a big negative because to me, like, look. This and this is something they point out on commentary. I think this is the first time in Ring of Honor Christopher Daniels ever bladed. Like Christopher Daniels bleeding is not a common occurrence. He's not a guy known for that. Although Cle- now, clearly not clearly was not very practiced in it at the time. Yeah. Although I will say now he's a bit more now he's like an old deathmatch guy. It seems like doing all these crazy ladder matches in his late forties. Yeah. Yeah. At this time, you wouldn't think of that. In fact, I dug up a Christopher Daniels Ring of Honor shoot, and Daniels, Daniels was actually outright asked, why did you get color for the first time in Ring of Honor for this match? Uh, Daniels says it was all Raven's idea. Raven thought that it would get Punk and Cabana over as being more vicious because they'd bust over open Daniels, who wasn't even really involved in the feud. <laughs> and Daniels also says Raven was hurt, and because of that, he couldn't do as much as he wanted, so they thought they needed to add other things to the match to make up for the fact that Raven couldn't actually do much wrestling in the match. That was obvious, that Raven couldn't do much in this match, yeah. Yeah, this. I mean, again, I think that's another reason why Daniels got to play the face in peril, is because that enables Raven to not have to do much in the match except the key moments, which if you have a really hurt ankle you have to kind of work around that. Right. So Daniels closed this little shoot bit where he said, um, going to the blood thing, he says he was outdone on blading by punk who happens to hit an artery. Every time he gets color, the big goon, <laughs> said, like jokingly, like the big goon, he always yeah. just bleeds. So Daniels, you know, jo- I mean, Daniels was aware that like, I was supposed to get color and here's this guy I'm bleeding for the first time in this promotion. And punk is, you know, it's not important for him to bleed. And he gets ten times the blood, but yeah, yeah. I, I just um, I would have liked it, better. and I th- also thought that Colt and Punk weren't super exciting when they controlled um, Colt. I mean Daniels. Like no, although Punk, now, Punk, although Punk probably was you know anemic. <laughs> yeah, because he lost I, a lot I of think, blood. 
like Punk even said on a shoot when he was talking about like one of their other tag matches, he goes, I'm not a good tag wrestler. I think that's being a little hard on himself. But yeah, I think between the bleeding and just Punk probably hadn't been called on to do a lot of these kind of matches where you're doing a tag and you're beating down a guy as the heel, you know, usually a single Usually when you're gut bleeding like a gusher like that, you're selling a lot. You know, like you're like making big moves and then like just like kind of falling down, right? But like Punk had to be like an aggressor while his face was pouring blood. So that sounds – that seems really difficult. And the and the other thing is I felt like because Raven wasn't in the match much, like it felt like he didn't take that much off, offense to lose where – Punk does the, the chain assisted neck breaker and chokes him a little bit, and then he just gives him a few light chain whips and immediately gets the pin. And it just felt like he, I would have hit him with one more move, maybe onto the chain or something. Like it didn't feel like Raven should lose so easily, especially when he's losing so much in the feud. Yeah, I mean that's not a huge nitpick, but it was just a again when I'm comparing it to other matches that I've really enjoyed, I enjoyed this one too. But then I'm just. I have a lot to compare it to now. So it's like, well, that's something that was a little bit run a little bit weird. But overall, you know, these these Raven matches, again, I'm not getting tired of them yet. And uh, kudos to him for even going through with it if his ankle was really that screwed up. Right. And, and I also want to point out what you said about how Punk's getting, like, heat still and how that's, like, a, an admirable thing. At one point, he was getting like dueling CM Punk sucks chance for half the crowd was going CM Punk, and then a segment was going sucks afterwards, and uh, you know those kind of dueling chants weren't super common yet in Ring of Honor, and I think they're exactly what they wanted at this point because in the last couple shows they had started to try and position Punk as like the heel but kind of the anti-hero that was like, hey, for you in the crowd that threw up the X, you know, I'm on your side, and so within a couple shows of them doing that. I think he's getting exactly the reaction he probably wants at that point because he is getting a segment of the crowd, but not all of them, to be on his side. Yes, that is that's a good point. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the match ends. Oh, and the other thing that was interesting was Raven gets a visual pinfall. That's a big point in this match, but the ref is knocked out, and that's a very rare spot in Ring of Honor. But I felt like it was important to when Raven's losing this much, you need to kind of give him an out like that. So I thought that was good that they did that. Um, after the match, let's what Matt said, uh, they beat on Colt and Punk beat on Raven and some more McDaniels watch. Um, finally Raven and Daniels and danger recover. They really take a while to, to recover. Raven gets on the mic and he tries to sell that. He's really out of breath from being choked. He's like coughing and gasping. Um, Raven tries to cut a promo doing this. He says there has to be retribution for what Punk did, as this is like the 12th time he says that Punk has left him choking on his own bile. The crowd kind of laughs at this, this acknowledgement that, yeah, you've lost a lot. Um, Raven wants Punk in a dog collar match in New Jersey. Raven promises Punk will bleed, which seems like a weird thing to promise because Punk's bled, I think, multiple times <laughs> now in the feud already, including what just happened. So like, <laughs> You're going to bleed, which maybe goes to, I think this was a, an on-purpose blade job, but maybe that goes to what you said it was an accident, because why would you make such a big deal if, like, Punk's going to bleed on the next show when he just, like, bled horrifically? Yeah, like, he, he can't bleed much more than he did on this one. <laughs> yeah, like, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. I mean, he would have to be near death if he topped what he just did, so. Although I will say, I'm pretty sure he does get another pretty good blade job on the next <laughs> show, but. 
And that goes to what Daniel said that like every time he scratches himself, this guy just opens an artery. Like, yeah, yeah. I guess Punk was just riding a wave of great blade jobs at this point. But maybe he maybe he was straight edge except for aspirin. <laughs> aspirin and diet coke. Uh-huh. That's, that's, isn't that the combination that guy? I always got why the aspirin works because that thins your blood. But I never got why you know the coke is that thin your blood because. I always heard it's the aspirin and a Coke, which was always weird before, you know, you're going to blade. You're sure they're talking about Coca-Cola? <laughs> I'm just asking. If know. we did a quote before every episode from the episode, that would be the quote we would start this episode. <laughs> that was perfect. Um, next, we go into one of the biggest, probably one, the, I mean, this is the, the one main thing this show is remembered for. And that's, although I don't even think people, I think people remember the promo. I don't think they even remember what show it comes from, but this is the show. It's a punk promo we get where right after the match, we see punk and Cabana and Lucy going down the stairs backstage. Punk is still drenched with this drying blood. And um, punk says, you know, he's. He just stops at the bottom of the stairwell and he says nothing stops him. And that the reason he hates Raven is he didn't know any better when he was a kid, when his dad came home smelling like beer. Punk didn't know his dad was at the bar. He thought his dad was at coming home from a hard day's work, but it turned out work meant the unemployment office. Punk didn't think it was strange for someone to come from work and have to take an old style into the shower with him. He didn't think it was strange for someone to pass out. He thought a pack of old style beers a day was the norm. Punk says his dad is exactly like Raven. Punk says he'd shake Raven's hand, but he doesn't respect him. And he hates Raven for everything he pissed away. Everything Punk has scrapped and clawed for. Things he hasn't even earned yet. Things that Raven got handed to him and and that Raven flushed down the toilet. For pills and booze and alcohol, which I wrote my notes, huh? Like booze and alcohol. Um, And women... Punk says for the next match, he will become a monster to fight the monsters of the world. And Raven's time in Ring of Honor is will be done. And that's a promise because, and he says as he's motions to all his straight edge tattoos, this is true. This is real. This is straight edge. And he's screaming this at the end. Very intense promo the whole time. This was something I actually wanted to play because I think it, this was a really famous punk promo. And I feel like if you don't get the delivery it doesn't my recap doesn't translate it. I couldn't quite figure it out in time. But look it up if you can find this promo. There is a segment of it on the uh the Punk Best in the World WWE documentary, which is on the network or probably still in like DVD remainder bins because DVDs are dead, but like <laughs> it's a good DVD. And um there there is I don't think it's the whole clip, but there's a clip of it in the section where that's going over Punk's ROH days. And I would say this before he joined WWE this was either Punk's first or second most famous promo. I think the only thing that comes close to this is the promo after he beats Austin Aries for the Ring of Honor title when everyone thought he was leaving. And he does the I'm a, I'm a snake and I fooled you all promo. Mm-hmm. But this was the promo in a lot of ways I think that kind of put Punk on the map for some more people. We'll get into Punk's thoughts in a second. But Punk even acknowledges that this is the promo he thinks that took him to a new level in Ring of Honor. Um, Matt, before we get into kind of the background and some of Punk's thoughts on this, like, what did you just think of this? Like, it's kind of a short promo, but does it still hold up? I mean, it holds up in terms of execution and delivery. It's a great, like, it's a great promo in terms of, like, just technical, like, promo delivery skills and, 
you know, obviously it really did a great job of getting across the character and the mission statement and the storyline. Um, but I've always had the same beef with it, um, which is just, and maybe I'm asking too much, but it's just too freaking on the nose. Like, just like the whole concept, like, I do not like you, Raven, because you remind me of my father, and I am angry at my father, who is also like you, so I will take my anger at my father out on you, because I see you as a vessel representing my father. And it's just like, um, you could say that more subtly. Like, uh, I, I, I guess maybe it's, like I said, asking too much of wrestling to have any subtlety at all, um, but... This is like it's just the fact that they say it so directly. I mean, that's not Punk's fault. That's not Raven's fault. That's probably you know the booking, um, making it so direct. And maybe there was no other option. But it always rubbed me the wrong way, just how much they had to spell everything out so directly like that. I feel like that's not how most storytellers would tell that story, where they just say everything outright. But Punk was amazing. Punk's you know, especially with the blood, the blood added to it, you know, Punk and uh, Lucy were standing right next to him, sort of like, like, whoa, what are, like, what's gotten into you, dude? Um, which I also think added to it. Um, it's legendary. It's great. It's um, an all-time great, you know, maybe the best promo in ROH history. One of them. See, um, I actually think the unsubtlety kind of helps in the sense that Punk was a guy who, I think as he kept developing as a promo guy, he liked to tell stories, and I think he really liked the um, doing the lower voice, the more calm, evil type promos, which would be like the Summer of Punk promos and things like that. And this is a promo that is very different from that. It's it's a much more screamy, emotional, raw, like I'm angry at you promo, which I don't think Punk overall is known for, even though this is one of his most famous promos. Like it's it's a it's a difference and. I think in some ways the promo's overrated because I do think what you what you're absolutely right on about the unsullied is he's kind of telling a story, but he's also unlike a Mick Foley or someone, just kind of laying out facts. It's like it's like you a it's like a tell instead of show sort of thing, which I don't think is the, always the best kind of storytelling. Like if you watch some of those classic, I think in some ways this promo is very similar to those Mick Foley promos where Mick would talk about I think in his first book Have a Nice Day how his promos he'd always try that find that seed of truth, that real thing, and then explode that into a promo. But because he had that little kernel of truth, he could put real emotion in it. And I think that's what Punk did here. But where I think um, Foley would like tell a story and build up to it, this is more, there's no subtlety, as you said. It's so direct. It's just screaming like, my dad was a drunk. He did this. He did this. He did this. And he reminds me of you. And in some ways, yeah, like if it's, it's not going to be, I don't think it's as artful as a Mick Foley promo, but there is like something to that directness of just, you know, it's like the difference between a 16 year old telling you off and a educated 30 year old telling you off. Like the 30 year old's going to craft it in a way to really hurt you. The 16 year old's just going to be like, fuck you. And I, I think that's what punk comes off of here. Yeah. Like my dad was a drunk. You're a drunk. I fucking hate that. You know? Yeah, I guess just like the like I don't know. I just feel like mo- like just in terms of like character truth, I don't think most people would make that connection so directly. You know, like I hate Raven because I really hate my father. Like that's something that someone will psychoanalyze about someone else, but it's not something that you're going to say while you're in the midst of your hatred. Uh, I-, I don't know. And that's a good point because um, that's actually a very good point because it's something. It's one thing in this problem that is full of truth that would ring false because like Punk and Shoots and stuff would talk about 
Samoa Joe was his best friend. And like he would hang out with Samoa Joe and friends while they all drank and he drank like a Pepsi and he had no problem with that. So this idea that punk would hate someone because they drank is actually like the one false note in the promo. He, you know, the background is true. Like the dad stuff is, is the truth, but punk probably wouldn't really get mad at you because you like to have a drink. Although I know punk's promo is going beyond that. Yeah. But the other thing I want to talk about with this promo is something I, I've touched on a long time ago on the show, but I feel like this is a perfect point to touch on it again, which is what's a booker's responsibility? Because something that Gabe got really criticized for a lot, or not a lot, but among some of Gabe's harshest, harshest critics was, oh, a lot of Gabe's great ideas weren't his. They were from the wrestlers and he just used them and all this stuff. And I think that's a valid criticism if you're just talking about how creative a mind is Gabe Sapolsky. But if you're talking about how good a booker he was, my mind is always a booker isn't just an idea maker. He's the filter for all his talent and all the creative voices in his company. And to me, the idea the, – a booker isn't – their job isn't to create every good idea in the, that happens in their company. Their job is to – Make sure to listen to like 20 different voices and hear 20 different ideas and go, these three ideas are good and the rest are bad and we're going to use these three and the, to pick the right ones. Like I always go back to – I've said this before. Dave Meltzer used to always be asked by people on radio shows like who came up with this idea for WWE? Who came up for the, with this idea? And Dave would always say, you have to remember Vince McMahon approves everything. So no matter – who came up with the idea, if you didn't like something, it's Vince's fault. And if you yeah. like something, it's Vince's credit. Because, yes, he's. it's still important to know who created things, but it's still, at the end of the day, everything that happened happened because Vince said yes or no to it. And that's the same with Gabe. Like, G yes, Gabe used some ideas from people, but he also probably said no to a hell of a lot of ideas. He was a filter who picked which guys would work for, with him, picked which guys he'd listen to, and picked which other ideas he would use. And I'm saying all this long, all this long-winded rant to actually say this was Gabe's idea, this promo. Even though all this truth was was um was true stuff from Punk's life, it was Gabe's idea for this promo. Punk actually tells the story in an RF video shoot. He says the promo was Gabe's idea. Punk says Gabe was really trepidatious about even bringing the idea to Punk, but he thought if they revealed that Punk had an abusive alcoholic or, or an alcoholic dad, it would bring a whole new dynamic to the Raven feud halfway through. When Punk told Gabe that his dad actually really was an alcoholic, Punk says Gabe fell all over himself to apologize. Like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I didn't mean to offend you. But Punk actually thought the idea was cool. And it wasn't like his dad beat him or anything, Punk says. He just drank a whole lot. And, so, and Punk says everything in that sense that's in the promo are things that really happened. Like his dad really was an alcoholic who drank his old style and all that. Punk says he seldom put over his own matches, but promos come natural to him. And he thought it was awesome. He says it came from the heart and was real easy to cut. Punk says he thinks the promo elevated him to a new level in Ring of Honor. And he even says that he'd get phone calls from people who had seen the promo later asking him if he was okay. Like, yeah, I'm okay. Like, I just bled a little bit during the match. It's like, I'm not, like, emotionally raw, but apparently it was raw enough to other people that knew him that they'd be like, are you okay? Like, we just saw this. Are you, do you have a problem with your dad? And so, yeah, I, I think that's a real interesting thing because until I did research for this, I thought 
like probably most people did, that Punk came out with this promo because it's known that this is based on true things, but actually it was completely Gabe's idea. And yeah. it just so happened that was a real thing for Punk. Yeah, which is part of why I'm criticizing the on-the-noseness of it because I feel like, you know, the storyteller was telling the story. It wasn't just like completely from the heart, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, I, but, 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 but you know, the, you couldn't have asked for a better delivery, I don't think. And, and also I think... Maybe this was too on the nose in some senses, but they. I think this feud at this point needed a um a, a something like this in it because when you think about it, Raven has lost almost every match in this feud so far. So you know why he wants to keep wrestling. He wants to beat Punk in a singles match. But what what reason does Punk have to keep beating on Raven? And until this promo, you don't really have a reason. Like, why wouldn't he just say, "I've beaten this guy enough. Can I just move on to something else?" So at the very least, this promo. Like, gives you a reason to go, oh, Punk doesn't just want to beat this guy. Like, he wants to take him out of wrestling. He hates him. Right. And even if that doesn't ring completely true, it at least gives Punk a justification for why he still wants to fight Raven, even though he's already beaten him, I think, three times. So. Yeah, and I like, you know, there's some good turns of phrase here. I'll become a monster to fight the monsters of the world. This is real. This is true. This is straight edge. I'm surprised he didn't use that, like, as a catchphrase, like, as much as, as well as that came off. Yeah, especially like again when he says that this is real, this is true, this is straight edge. He's motioning to the straight edge tattoos on his stomach and on his knuckles. Like, this isn't a gimmick for me. Like, I have this tattooed on me. This isn't. Right. This isn't fake. So yeah, I, I would have. I agree. I would have emphasized that more. But again, so in some ways it's an overrated promo. But in some ways it's whether whatever you think about this promo in 2018, this was a very significant promo for um, CM Punk and for Ring of Honor. And it was like one of the only indie promos of this time where, it's, it, you know, it's rare in indie wrestling to hear like, you have to see this promo. It's always you have to see this match. But this was definitely like, oh, man, you, you should see this promo. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's even, under, even to say understated to say of this time, it's one of the you know, few indie promos in history that got this kind of buzz. Yeah, that made that made a difference. That boosted a guy's career. That got people talking. That you should see this. That according to Punk, got his friends talking, worried about him. So honestly, were there ever any other indie promos <laughs> that that had that that had that reached that level of buzz? Honestly, that, that maybe, you can think again, of. Like, maybe, maybe the other Punk ones, like maybe yeah. the Summer of Punk, where he signs the contract on the Ring of Honor title, and the Aries one, which are again CM Punk promos. Right. So this yeah. might be like this might be like. The greatest indie wrestling promo of all time, or on the yeah. short, or on the short list, which is crazy to think about. I mean, I'm sure there are some good indie wrestling, heartfelt indie wrestling promos, but oh, yeah, of course, nothing that's nothing that's memorable. You know? Yeah, nothing that's like yeah. part of the canon the way this one is. Exactly. Again, it was included in the in the WWE documentary, so they knew, even they knew, like, or I'm sure Punk told them, like, this was important. Yeah, for sure. So we're going on to the semi-main event. It's an NWA World Heavyweight title match. AJ Styles defends against Chris Sabin, and he defeats Chris Sabin via pinfall 10 minutes, 6 seconds after he hits the Styles Clash. Um, this was a big, I think Samoa Joe mentioned that when AJ Styles got the NWA title, they, uh, Ring of Honor showcased it and glorified AJ Styles. This was definitely the show he, they were, he was referring to because AJ comes out to the 2001 theme like rick flair would they even make a big production before the match of announcing that this is x division champ versus nwa champ but only the nwa title is on the line 
Doug Gentry says on commentary, this is a unique matchup that can only be seen in Ring of Honor, which seems a little weird because it's yeah. two TNA guys. Like, I, I bet you, you could have seen AJ Styles versus Chris Saban in other promotions. Yeah. But but um, still, the Ring of Honor really worked hard to sell like the importance of the NWA title and how cool it was they were getting an NWA title match. Probably more than three. TNA sold it. <laughs> y- yeah, on- honestly. Yeah. And – as a match, I would say this isn't what you would expect from these two in a in a ten minute semi main. The first few minutes are kind of slow. There's a lot of work fighting over headlocks. It's not bad work. It's just not what you would expect. But then, as the match continues, they start hitting like really cool athletic moves, and you're like, "Wow, this is the cool stuff you'd expect from AJ Styles versus Chris Sabin in 2003." I mean, especially like. I think at one point AJ does a Rana where he basically Rana's Saban's neck onto the top rope and like choke snaps him with it, which looked really inventive and cool. And I would say overall, it's a good match. It's not what I would expect. If, if someone told me beforehand, like AJ Styles versus Chris Saban is semi main eventing this show. I'm going to, I would say I would expect more than the 10 minutes I got and what they did in the 10 minutes. But I think like, as they built the match, what they did was, very fun it's a good match it's just not like it's a match honestly i don't have that much to say uh about and for all the build-up of like nwa title match semi-main event aj styles you know it it, it didn't work it like it was a huge semi-main event for them yeah i would agree with that i um i kind of see it as almost like a tn like i would see it almost as like a tna match like very high spot oriented like there are a lot of sequences here that were very impressive and very cool like they 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 displayed their athleticism athleticism very well um i um i there just wasn't a lot of glue or wasn't a lot of you know, bite to the match. You know what I mean? Like there wasn't a substance, I guess is the word I'm looking for. But, you know, I wrote down a bunch of really cool like sequences. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the thing that you were talking about where, um, so basically AJ is in, like standing on the apron and um, Saban is also standing on the apron, like adjacent to his apron. Like, you know, they're both on the opposite sides of the same turnbuckle. So Styles springboards from the from the apron onto the the middle rope jumps across and hits into that frankensteiner position and falls backwards you know which uh, you know uh, snapping saban's neck which is i've never seen that move before have you i, I can't remember no, ever seeing no. it so like it's it's rare that you see a match where you've never seen a move before and it worked out that well so that was really cool there was another thing where saban gave like a spinning head scissors on styles who was like in the ring and he just and he flew all the way on no all the way to the guardrail and hit his head in the guardrail, which I thought was really cool. Um, AJ hit a vertical suplex and then drop, but then like drops to his knees into a neckbreaker and then hits a brainbuster. So I just like there's lots of cool moves here. Saban hit like a 360 German on AJ for two. Then AJ goes for the moonsault DDT, but Saban reverses. Um, which is um, leading to a, to a nearly indescribable series of reversals where like they're like rolling around each other's back and then Saban gets a crucifix um, and then a p- pinning combo for a two and the crowd just went nuts for that. Like it's just like a, a, a series of reversals that's completely impossible to describe. And then uh, AJ knocked Saban off the top rope, got him in the Styles class position, but Saban went for a Rana. AJ rolled through, got him back in the Styles class position and hit, the, uh, and hit a... Um, 
hit a pinfall. It felt like an early X Division title match. There's like a lot of cool moves, but like nothing much more than that. But they're great athletes, so it was fun to watch. But again, I would just say that's about it. It was fun to watch. It was a fun match, but not really much of like a complete match, I guess. And it was short. Yeah, I, I think that's like the perfect way to describe it. It felt like an Impact TV match. You'd say, oh, that was pretty good. Or even in the early days, the an Impact uh, pay-per-view match, not like an important one, back when they were doing the weekly pay-per-views. I think one thing I, I thought of when you were describing some of the great offense AJ was doing, like the uh, the suplex into the neck breaker, is I think something that AJ Styles is really good at that not a lot of guys are, is he's good at moves that are innovative, athletic, but also look like they really hurt. Like yes. there's a lot of wrestlers that get one or two of those. Like when he does stuff like the Rana where he rounds the guy's neck onto the rope or that suplex into the neck breaker and stuff. It's like, it's innovative and it's showing off how athletic he is, but it also, you know, looks like it's a vicious move. And I, and I feel like a lot of wrestlers can't get all three of those. Yes, I agree. So, on all counts. So, so, I mean, that's something I've really, I mean, I knew AJ Styles was good, but I've really come to appreciate that element of him, that he can do the athletic match, but also make it look painful in a way that maybe a lot of guys these days, they, they focus on the athletic and the fun and they forget to add a bit of a, the snap to it. You know? and, and when you say these days, you mean 2003 and 2018. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, even, even 2003, it stood out. I mean, yeah. as much as I love Special K, they weren't making things look like they hurt unless Angel Dust was actually hurting. So <laughs> we're, well, actually, he was usually getting hurt, but either way. Um, either way, yes. After the match, AJ gets on the mic, and this is continues like the big NWA title glorification where um, AJ basically talks about the history of the NWA title. I just write in my notes, he says names, exclamation mark, Lou Fez, Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes. Uh, AJ says a couple of years ago, it was the title was thrown in the trash. He asked the crowd if it's trash. They say no. AJ puts the belt over big as a world's heavyweight title defended all over the world and says he knows the crowd will respect it as much as he respects them. I, um, I was surprised at how positive the crowd reacted to this. Like Ring of Honor in a year or two when the difficulties between TNA and Ring of Honor would happen, it would you know, a lot of TNA fans would grow to say, oh, Ring of Honor fans, those robots, they they hate TNA, they're, they, they, they're so resentful and jealous of us. And I'll note here in 2003, this crowd was very supportive of AJ cutting a long, not a long, but a significant promo about how great another company's title was. Like, they were into it. They, they were supportive of them. Well, they were all about the tradition at this point. You know, the crowd was just very, like, idealistic. Like, we just love wrestling. So I guess that's why. And then, you know it would become a little bit more tribal, uh, I guess, as time went on. Like, I would argue on this show, Ring of Honor and AJ put over this title more than the Ring of Honor title. Even on the place on the card, like, this is almost an Xavier-type thing where Joe's the last match before intermission and AJ with the NWA titles the semi-main event. So. Yeah, and like, and kind of like the last regular match of the night because the, the, the main event is sort of like this almost unsanctioned craziness where they change the ring mats and stuff. Yeah. So, so the, yeah, that's another thing where, again, it, it felt like they were really rolling out the red carpet for this match. But but they didn't actually going, give it the time to be a real world title match. Yeah, and, it, and they didn't feel like even with the time they were given, they were working it like it was as important as maybe the placement and the promos made it felt. Like right. made it seem like it was supposed to be. But, right. 
Um, backstage, we join Gary Michael Capetta again, old GMC. He's urgently getting the cameraman to follow him about three feet away to find Loki just standing there wearing a hat, kicking a punching bag. Um, Capetta tells Key that he told Julius Smokes that Key thought Homicide would have won the title if he wasn't there. Gary, at this point, just a middleman between Key and Smokes passing notes. Um, <laughs> and so he says that Smokes now wants to meet with Low Key. Capetta is giving Key a heads up, not wanting him to walk into a possible ambush. Key says, he wants to meet with me? Okay. And boom, end of segment. It just ends suddenly like that. Well, it also feels like Capetta is like sort of in the position of like being a shit stir. Also, like like Loki said this, Julius Smoke said this. Like not just like it's not just like a benign thing that he's doing, but he's like actually like actively causing problems. He he is very sheepish all night. Like yeah. don't get mad, but I yeah. I heard Loki saying something about you. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of fun. Yeah, it's definitely a step less professional than Gary's been treated as so far. Not that he's been a huge part of the company, but yeah, like he's, right. he's kind of a shitster tonight. Um, and that leaves us with the main event, the match that Gabe points out they changed the canvas for because Ring of Honor just got a new ring apron canvas and do not want it getting screwed up by this match. So they put on the old ratty canvas, and that would be a fight without honor. Trent Acid defeats Homicide via pinfall in 19 minutes, 42 seconds with what I put in my notes as, quote, a crappy roll-up, unquote. Um, I'm really interested in hearing what you think about this match, Matt, because one, we haven't seen a lot of matches like this in Ring of Honor so far. And two, like, we talked about some of this privately before doing the show, but we didn't talk about this match. So what did you think about Trent Acid versus Homicide in a fight without honor? I'm actually really interested in what you're, uh, what you think of it too. But um, yeah, so okay, so first of all, um, Acid is like playing a different character during his entrance. Like I don't know if you noticed that. Like, oh, I did. Yeah, he's he has like his obviously his hair in like braids which is different the way he usually has it. He's wearing, like, the Homicide 187 jersey as he comes out. But he's also making, like, different faces and, like, sneakily taking the money instead of, like, playing his, like, playboy, like, dancing to the aisle kind of thing. Like, he's just, like, he's a different guy, which is, which is and also different music, too. Which, but it's, it's more it, weird and sinister than happy-go-lucky now. Right. There's, like, yeah, right, he's trying to be sinister. Um, it's interesting. Like, I don't know if that's the character he always played in other promotions or, like, what the deal is, but... It's definitely different, so that gives a different vibe. And he jumps homicide like right, right as um, you know, right as he gets down the aisle, and immediately hits a crazy acai moonsault, like an incredible like airborne acai moonsault, where he hits his legs on the guardrail, like lands head first. It's it's a disaster, but like also really cool. And I would say that's sort of what the match is, right? It's like it's a <laughs> yeah. disaster, but also really cool. Um, it's just like a big moves party, like, but like a level of intensity higher than like the AJ and Saban big moves party. Like there's ladders, like bridging lots of ladders, knocking them into people, fast paced. And the crowd loves it. Like you can't deny it. The crowd loves it. Um, the big moves generally are hit. Like they don't really botch them. You know, it's not like the Sandman versus Sabu where they're just like missing half of their moves. Like they're actually hitting them. They're showing their athleticism. Um, some highlights. Um, so he, uh, so homicide gets 
Acid sitting in a chair at ringside, and you think he's going to go for the Tope Cone Hilo, but instead he does like a flying body press, which I thought was really cool. Um, uh, you see that the tables and ladders are already like pre-set up at ringside for them to grab. Um, suddenly Johnny Cashmere appears and hits a T gimmick on Homicide, and um, and then John then Smokes and Cashmere fight, uh, you know, fight each other on the outside, fight each other all the way to the back, and the ref is distracted, so Homicide has a chance to kick out. Um, so and then that goes to what you were saying before about like Smokes at this point is still portrayed as like a serious threat, like he's able to single handedly run off Johnny Johnny Cashmere. Right. Exactly. Um, then, like right at right after that, Trinacid hits a backseat driver, which is a really cool move, and gets two uh, for that. And the hum- and the crowd really chants big for Homicide. Then they get to the dueling chants. Um, Homicide tries to splash uh, Acid uh, through a table, but Acid throws a chair at Homicide's head and knocks him off the top rope. And then. So Acid haphazardly sets up a table in the ring. By the way, du- during all this, um, like they're using ladders and all this shit, and the crowd's chanting, we want tables. And it's like, can't you people be happy with what you have? Um, I hate that. I yeah. hate when crowds are seeing like crazy g- – It's not just because it's being like greedy, but also because you know they're going to bring out the table. Like you don't need to chant for it. Just wait another three minutes. Like you're going to see a table. Also, ladder spots are cooler than table spots. Uh, does, yeah. anyone, does anyone really disagree with this? Especially, like, everyone knows the table is just, like, a very thin, like, particle board thing. Well, some of these Ring of Honor tables have been pretty brutal. But in general, tables aren't, like, an impressive thing compared to, like, warping a metal ladder, like you were saying. Right. All right, so so let me set the scene for this next move. So the way they have it set up is, like, they have tables and ladders set up, like, around the guardrail, like, leaning against the guardrail, a little bit away from the ring, like, not not touching the ring. Like, you know, you have the the ringside area and then the guardrail, and you have the ladders and the tables set up, like, 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 touching the guardrail. So they were using ladders, they were taking out the tables, there was still a table left at the guard, by the guardrail that they hadn't touched yet. So Acid is setting up a table in the ring, sets it up very haphazardly, and the crowd is chanting, fix the table at him. So they get up on the top rope, like Acid's going to do a move through that table. All of a sudden, Homicide fights off and jumps and does this insane ace crusher from the top rope all the way to the floor to the table that's like far away by the guardrail. So they like just fly through the air unexpectedly to the floor, crashing through this table. It was really, really insane and cool. And the crowd didn't expect it and it got a huge pop and it was a awesome, awesome spot. And I really thought it was great. I think it maybe would have been a little bit better if Acid made it look like he actually wanted to use the table that he set up by actually setting it up <laughs> properly. But I still didn't see it coming, you know? So that, so I think it's fine. Acid kicked out from a delayed cover after that because, you know, he had to get him back in the ring. Then they trade Yakuza kicks with no selling. And Acid hits one to the back and one to the front for two. Um, it, like, there's really no selling to speak of here. But it's such a nutty match that I think it's kind of okay. Um Acid goes up to, to the top um, to, 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 get a, to get a ladder, and si- oh, he goes up top, um, and Homicide tips the ladder. Oh, okay. I'm reading my notes, and they're sloppy. But um, Acid goes to the top of a ladder, and Homicide tips the ladder over, and he sends Trent to the floor. And, um, and Sign leads another ladder on the guardrail and goes for a tope cone helo. And uh, Acid moves, and Homicide goes through the, goes through the ladder. But he uh, he kicks out of that. Gabe tries to sell that homicide is uh, is like hitting his hip. He's mentioned a few times that homicide is 
like favoring his hip, but it doesn't really play too much into the match. There's more Yakuza kicks. Trent blocks the cop killer and gets a sloppy roll up for three. Um, I thought it was wild. I thought it was memorable. It was different. Um, very well, a worthy addition to the ROH canon, I think. A match, you know, worth seeing. You know, I, I don't want to say it's a great match, but it's different and it's cool. Uh, the ending sucked, though. Like, I, I, I hate that. I hate those, like, crappy roll-ups, especially when they're not even well executed. Um, so I thought it was, a, like, I, just a, a silly and poorly executed finish. I guess I sort of understand, like, this heel is sneaky and does something lame to win to keep things going. I get it. Um, I don't totally know what they were trying to go for with Acid winning other than to set up another match between those two. Um... But I like, you know, I, I don't know if this match was good, but I thought it was cool, I guess. Like, I don't, you don't see too many matches like this. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, what do you think? Um, you echoed a ton of my thoughts. I, one of the first few words I have in my notes for this match is I just wrote big, dumb fun. Yeah. Like, I, I think this is one of those matches where you have to kind of turn your mind off it's just 20 minutes of crazy big spots. And I think the, the credit to them is that you never really get tired or burnt out. Like they're always moving on to the next crazy thing. You know, it doesn't get too there, – there's only a couple moments in the match that have a bit of that one guy's selling for a year so the other guy can set something up. For the most part, this is just – it keeps moving and there's always something crazy. And I think that spot you described, the, the kind of the misdirection and then it ends with Homicide hitting the Ace Crusher – off the top to a table on the floor. I think that's maybe one of the craziest spots we've seen so far doing the podcast. That might be the craziest. One of the craziest like, spots like I've seen, period. I mean, obviously, you know, there's like Mick Foley going through like the table in Hell in a Cell, but you know what I mean. Like, in terms of like not like that, <laughs> pretty crazy spot. <laughs> I, I think so. I think the crazy thing is like watching this match, there are matches where it, it looks like guys are getting hurt or screwed up because like they're botching things or, and here like it didn't look like it looked like they were hurting, getting hurt, but it looked like everything was going exactly how they planned or at least close to how they planned. The irony like, here, like, the irony here is that the one botched move was a roll up at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exa- I just real. Oh my God. You are a genius, Matt. Like <laughs> the safest thing they did was the thing they fucked up. Yeah. Like that is so weird, but it, that's yeah. absolutely true. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like even that first one of the first big spots of the match that you described where Trent Acid does a Asai moonsault to the outside, crashes his ankles on the guardrail and then lands right on his head to the point that the ref has to ask him if he's OK. Like it just seemed in this match that these two – you don't see too much of this in wrestling now where it, it felt like they cared more about this match being exciting than like their personal health. Like it felt – there was definitely moments – during this match where I honestly felt like these two don't care if they like hurt themselves tonight. Just as long as the match is good. Seems like it. I don't think they weren't really botching. They were just willing to do a lot of stuff and and just take risks. And yeah, homicide wasn't really selling his hip most of the time, but there was a couple points where I wondered if that, it didn't really feel like a story point. It felt like Gabe just trying to talk about like, Something real that was happening? Yeah, like Homicide fucked up his hip, maybe. Because there's a couple points where Homicide shakes it off, but he's he's walking like an 80-year-old grandmother <laughs> holding his hip kind of just... You know, it's not like... It's not a sexy injury to say you hurt your hip. That's why we don't see wrestlers sell their hip usually. But Homicide, a couple times, if you watch this match, is just like walking really weirdly and holding on to his hip. 
But then kind of going to what you said, quickly it'll just be ignored. Like all of a sudden he'll be moving around like his hip's fine. But then later on he'll grab his hip again. So I don't know if he's selling – doing the weirdest hip-based selling ever in a match with almost no like long-term selling or story or if he really did hurt his hip and it would just – yeah, like came up once in a while. Yeah, I guess it was, might have sort of been like one of that those things that Gabe was doing for the first year of ROH, where he'd be like, "Look at that! He totally broke his middle tooth." You know, like where like he knew <laughs> he knew about an injury after the match, so he like made it seem like he saw it when it happened. I could tell from that slap that he that uh, Jimmy Rave has suffered a hairline crack to his third bicuspid. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> like immediately knowing exactly what happened. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this was uh, I, I would put this in terms of ranking matches, which I always like to say for the awards. I say always we've only done one year of awards so far, but like if last show I mentioned that my top five in no order would be four Paul London matches and then the do or die homicide Samoa Joe match, I wouldn't say this match is on the level of those five, but I would say if there was one level down, this match would be there. Yeah, like, I mean, it, I mean, if it had a finish like uh, that worked. Do you think that that would have raised it onto that level? I think so. Well, here's the thing. I also feel like, what do you think about the fact that they did the crazy Ace Crusher spot to the floor, but that wasn't the finish of the match? Like, they kept going for another couple of minutes. Do you think, like, it's weird because you can't really do the pin on the outside. I guess you could have tried to ask Gabe to make it false count anywhere. Yeah. But, and, but also, that was Homicide. Homicide was supposed to lose, but, like... Is there anything they could have done to top that? If you're, if you're going on the idea that like you have to end a match at the high point, I don't think there's a way you could top that. Yes, although I'm not I'm not religious about that concept that you have to end a match at the high point. You know, I mean, again, hell in a cell, right? Like, you know, they, you know, like the you know Foley the first move of the match was the high point of like wrestling history in some ways, and then they had to do a whole other match after that, and people still remember that match. Um, so I don't necessarily think that's a rule, but yeah, if this was false Ken anywhere and that was the last move of the match and it was like, it was executed in that same surprising manner, I think that would have been one of the all time epic finishes. So, so I think you have a point there. And and you're, you're right to the point of, I'll note that even though that's not the finish of the match, even though nothing tops that move, it's not like they lose the crowd. Right. I mean, the crowd is still into the match. It's not one of those things where people would talk about in later years, like, Oh, that ring of honor match went five minutes too long and the crowd died. Like, no, the crowd's still into it. It's just, that was clearly the biggest spot they had. Right. And they used it. And, um, man, did they pull that spot off though? Yeah. Like there's so many ways that could have gone wrong. The distance you have to fly. And it's like, they hit exactly where they needed to hit. It just went perfect. Yeah. And even the misdirection, I, I think on a few shows ago, I called down how goofy I think misdirection spots are, where you set up a table and then ignore it for 10 minutes and then go through it. But they worked this one so well that you really did kind of forget and not see it coming. Yeah, because, because again, like they didn't set that table up. It was there. Yeah. So you didn't – and you didn't, probably didn't even know it was there. You know, like that's really cool. And, and – I'll go going to what you said though, like the one big flaw in that I wrote, like this is one of the parts that was dumb and the big dumb fun was Trent, you know, he's trying to set that table up in the ring to do the misdirection. It's the table they're not gonna go through. And there's some it looks like one of the legs got stuck, like he couldn't get it to fold up right or something when he was getting it in the ring. It was like partially the, stuck in the on the bottom rope, yeah. Yeah, and when he gets it into the ring, he can't fully extend the legs on the table. So the table's like 
the, the legs are at angles and the table's maybe three or four inches off the mat. And like you said, the crowd's chanting, fix your table. And it is the one, I guess you would say, quote unquote, if you're Rift Rogers or somebody, business exposing part of the match because you go, well, I've never seen a table set like that in the world. Like, why would you try and set a t- – isn't that dangerous? And then once you see this, the ace crusher spot, you realize, oh, like, Trent Acid knew they were never going through that table. Like, so right, it didn't right. really matter how he set it up. Because right, right. he knew there's there's not a t- point in this match that we're going through it. But before the spot was hit, you did still didn't see it coming. So it's I think it was still okay. Yeah, it, 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 it all happened like you were just confused and like, what? What's happening? And then, yeah, it just – Really, and it's, again, it's kind of a, we've seen brawls and gimmick matches and weapons. I don't think we've ever seen kind of a, a spectacle main event match like this where you got a lot of weapons and things, but it was just it was still felt like it felt like a gimmick match and not just a gimmick. It was a gimmick match. There yes. was still wrestling and moves and and yeah, th- that that roll up is horrible. Um, are you of the opinion that like a a gimmick match with weapons should never end with a roll-up or just not end with a roll-up that crappy. Because online, looking at some research of what people thought of this match, there's definitely, like, I feel like a split. Like, some people, I think, wouldn't have cared if that roll-up was the best roll-up in the world. Yeah, I don't think I would have liked it even if the roll-up worked. Like, even if the roll-up was well executed. I just think, like, it just, you know, just like the whole, like, we're going to have this epic fight about, which is just about brutality and hatred and stuff but also oh the heel has to be sneaky you know like some you know what i mean like we have to get this like traditional heel thing over like i I never liked that i feel like there are matches where that works and there are matches where it doesn't and like and i also so like i think when a match like this you're going for maximum drama you're not going for like a character thing you know and a roll-up is a character thing um, so, so you're, you're, you're sacrificing aesthetics and drama for a character development thing that is not even going to be something you're going to use or develop. So what's the point? Why, why sacrifice the match for this thing that you're, that's not even going to matter in your promotion? I don't get it. I'm not against roll-ups finishing gimmick matches as a principle, but I think they have to be really good, sudden, tight-looking roll-ups. And this one was nowhere close. And I also feel like I, I think you were kind of getting to this. This this finish didn't serve the match. It served the booking, I think. Like, I think they just wanted to roll up, not because it would make the match better, but because it kind of made Homicide look a little bit better than if he had just lost from, like, a horrible gimmick shot, like, in a mono-mono fight. Like, the idea of, oh, he kind of, like, in a street fight, it's kind of cheap that he lost to a roll-up. It was almost like giving him a bit of an out. But for the match, that doesn't make the match better. It makes it a little bit worse, actually. But in hindsight, he should have just won. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is almost <laughs> like the Striker Collier match where, you know, worse Trent though, Ass- but yes, yeah, yeah. Trent Acid isn't getting a singles push. He's get he's a part of a tag. Homicide's getting the singles push, and yet, I almost feel like sometimes I've seen interviews with Gabe. I feel like Gabe sometimes sometimes his philosophy is if I know I'm giving some guy a good thing and booking later on, he can give up a loss here rather than just I'm pushing this guy. I'm going to like make sure he wins at every turn for a while. I mean, he did that with Samoa Joe, but it almost feels like, well, I know he's got the Carino feud coming up. At this point, he had the key feud coming up. He can lose to Trent Acid, except you're not really doing anything with Trent Acid. I mean, also, Homicide loses to Carino in the first match. Yeah, yeah, that's the other problem, too, is it just feels like, yeah, it's another thing where the guy that's in the middle of uh, 
time of momentum loses to the guy who isn't a isn't really like he's he's just not getting as much attention. It's just yeah, yeah, it's weird. But very fun match, best match on the show easily. And after the match, there's I think a few bullshit chants, but. I think the crowd quickly gets over it. It's one of those things where they're a little disappointed by the finish, but then they realize, oh, the match was really good, so we should shut up. Also, they and, they, they they have a lot to distract them with very quickly. Yeah, because um, low-key and homicides, as Gabe calls them, New York crew comes out. This is something I think you've touched on. You, you alluded to this shows and shows ago, but Monster Mac comes out here as part of the New York crew, and Gabe does not mention him by name. Like He's just part of the generic New York crew, which felt kind of harsh yep and and this happens literally all the time from now on he will be there sometimes and he will never be acknowledged yeah yeah when when monster mac was leaving you said this would happen and i i'd kind of forgotten but yeah this is like the very first example of he doesn't get the respect of even being like a former ring of honor regular he's just an anonymous crew guy it's weird friends yeah gabe Um, gabe can you tweet us and explain why you don't (laughs) acknowledge monster mac (laughs) If you've made it two plus hours into like it, not one of the most prominent 2003 Ring of Honor show episodes, uh, let us know. But Homicide goes to shake Trent Acid's hand when the lights go out. Um, special K's music plays, and we get a long sequence of them making their way to the ring and doing things we can't see because the strobe lighting leaves the ring, the building in mostly absolute darkness. And then Gabe and Doug try and make out what's happening, and this goes on for long enough to become unintentionally funny until the lights come on to reveal that the backseat boys are on tables and two members of Special K promptly dive off the top rope to put them through them those tables simultaneously. A bunch of girls who Gabe calls the Special K sluts come out to join Special K. Another thing you would not be allowed to say now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Girls start making out with each other in the ring. Notice how the Uh, announcers didn't react the same way to that, that they react when the Christopher Street Connection make out in the ring. (laughs) This is disgusting. They're they're much more into this. Um, Girls start partying in the ring with Special K. Um, when Gabe sees two girls making out, he goes, wow, two girls are making out. I think they're on E. <laughs> um, Derange gets on the mic and asks the crowd to ready for a rave. He doesn't say a wrestle rave to get you the titular line, oh. unfortunately. But he you, uh, man, now I'm just imagining, are you all ready for a wrestle rave? <laughs> Boy, ready? that, that would have been so good. I would have loved if you said, are you ready for wrestle rave 2003? <laughs> they just, but, um, so they... Derange says, hit our music. Electronic music, not the Special K theme, starts playing. Uh, Special K keep partying and stomping the backseat boys at the same time. Uh, Gabe and Doug act like there's puke on the canvas. They say it's glad it's the old canvas and maybe someone got the old, bad drugs. And then later on, the camera cuts when the lights are on. And you, it definitely looks like someone threw up in the ring. Yeah, it, that's, but isn't that like such weird luck that they actually did have someone puke? Um, when Unless they someone the, was living the 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 gimmick, also like, do you think they planned the puke? Because there was nothing in that gimmick match that would screw up the canvas, but you wouldn't want someone to puke on your new canvas. Like to me, that tells me they knew someone was going to do puke. Yeah, I guess so. But then they didn't show it, so like, it's yeah, weird. That's it's weird. That, that's it's a very weird thing. You only see the puke later, like way after Gabe and Doug talk about it, like after the fact in just a random shot of them walking around the ring once the house lights are on. Either it's – 
Yeah. It's, it's, either it's the best luck ever, or they planned it and decided to change. They tried to change their mind about showing it. I don't know. Maybe it was just luck because knowing Gabe, he would be like, "You've seen Vince McMahon talk, tell draws to puke, but no one does a puke angle like Ring of Honor. Look at the volume of that <laughs> chunks. Like, just you would think Gabe would brag about that, but um, Melter, so, no, no shoot interviews talking about the puke. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't find a random special case slut interview <laughs> on video dot com. You didn't. There, there was no Izzy shoot interview. No, I w- I wish. Yeah. Um, I would buy that, but the camera cuts to someone doing something weird in the entrance. Uh, is it Rob Feinstein? I don't know. It looked like someone came out for a second to dance. That might have been Rob Feinstein. Mm-hmm. Dixie climbs the hard camera stand and dances in front of it. The house lights come back on. Gabe and Doug say the show is over and it's time to go home, but Special K keep raving. Gabe says he's too old for the Special K girls. Special K is slapping ringside fan hands like baby faces. And then I just write, this segment just keeps going. Like, it is lengthy, this segment. But I guess that's sort of the point. So I, I, mean, I, was, I didn't mind it show. that much. Yeah. It's, I mean, I mean it, was, is, it, was, it was a wrestle-wrestle rave. It was so, one of the wrestlest raves I've ever seen. <laughs> it was one of the raviest wrestles I've ever <laughs> wrestled. Um, yeah. So we cut away from the ring. It's not over, but we get the Ring of Honor debut, at least on screen. He's not working the show of Jim Cornette, who would play pretty big part in Ring of Honor to come on and off. He's cutting a promo from backstage at Ohio Valley Wrestling, which he worked at at this time. Hey, kids, remember Ohio Valley Wrestling? He ran it at this time. Yes. And uh, he uh, this is a throwback because Jim Cornette keeps calling Ring of Honor the Ring of Honor. Yes. Like Bret Hart and SummerSlam. Yeah, he, so he hears it's the next big thing, but obviously he hasn't heard that much because he continues to say it's the Ring of Honor. He says the every time he mentions the name. Yeah, he, he says he's coming to their show, their, the Ring of Honor's show in Dayton, Ohio, and brings up other past next big things because he says the Ring of Honor is the next big thing he's heard. He says Ric Flair was the next big thing, the Midnight Express were, Smoky Mountain Wrestling was. And I, feel like, I feel like Smoky Mountain might have been a little bit of a stretch, but yeah. I mean, it was the next big thing. If you were like an ultra nerdy tape trader, it was pretty cool. But Fair enough. yeah, it was the next small thing. Yes, yes. Um, and he says at OVW, they trained the next big thing, Brock Lesnar. Cornette says he's going to find out if the Ring of Honor is the next big thing because he hear they re- he hears they respect tradition, but he also hears that they do these scramble matches and these riot matches, he says, and that they would put a hitch in old Grandma Fetty's get-along, is what <laughs> Jim Cornette says. Cornette says if the Ring of Honor can prove it to him, maybe they can do business with Cornette. And then Cornette sells the whole Dayton show as like, you're going to see me at the show decide whether or not to give Ring of Honor the seal of approval. I would say this is a very old school promo, both because it's kind of corny, no pun intended, but also <laughs> because Cornet's always trying to like sell the show. Like he's not just saying, come to the show and see me. He's trying to give you a hook. Like he's saying, I don't know if I like this Ring of Honor or not. If you come to the show, you will get an answer, which is a very old school, classic kind of always give the fans a reason to go kind of thing. I really appreciate that. Have you ever put a hitch in Grandma Fetty's get along before? Uh, no, definitely not. Like, okay. you can't prove that I've ever done that. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> but it's funny to think, like, he would help. If I remember correctly, doesn't Cornette help Ring of Honor get sold to Sinclair? Like, he's actually secretly a very important part of the company, and this is how he starts. Like, it's such a yeah. weird 
weird thing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he's, he's a big part of the company for a long time. Yeah, so it's almost like the Sumi Sakai, Allison Danger. I mean, not Allison Danger, Alexis Lurie thing, where it's like, fifteen years later, things are still going. Like, like that that part where he's like, I don't know about these scramble matches and these riot matches. It's like people think that Jim Cornette being the crotchety old guy is a new development. Like he was playing that up in two thousand three. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, he was yeah, sort of probably in the, in the nineties. He sort of like had that thing going for him. Yeah, Smoky Mountain was like back to basics wrestling, right? Exactly. Like yeah. I was about to say, he was doing best, a back to basics thing probably in like 1994. Yeah. You know, so he, this is this has been Cornette's thing for like half his adult life now. Since he um, was since he was like 24. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> since like Crockett started to get like slightly below average, he's been wanting to go back to the basics. Yeah. So. Um, we cut back to the ring where the backseat boys are recovering and the rave moves to the crowd where the special K gets into the crowd. I would say it looked like there was maybe one quarter of the crowd left that most of them had left, but they all kind of, most of them had congregated on this one side where special K were partying. Uh, the camera hangs on for a few girls to start barely dancing in the crowd. I wrote, um, this moment, I wrote, this moment is to raves what the second and third Ring of Honor riots were to wrestling riots. Yeah, well, this looks like the weakest rave at this point ever. Yeah, it's kind of a sad rave. Um, but you know what would have been cool is if, if Jimmy Rave had not yet debuted for the W for ROH, and like he just like emerged from the ground, and like this rave created the specimen known as Jimmy Rave. <laughs> like they <laughs> raved so hard they created the prototypical wrestler rave. And what if special? Special K became like the Dudleys, where every member's last name was Rave. So it was like Izzy Rave, Dixie Rave, Angel Rave. Yeah, I mean, it's a missed opportunity. Slugger Rave. Yes. Um, Joey Matthews. Okay, anyway. Um, backstage, we cut again to a Logan DeVito Carnage Crew promo. And they're going over the highlights of their match tonight, gleefully celebrating. They say bringing in Just Incredible made things feel like old times. DeVito praises his own Taz-like forearm shots that he gave out tonight, and he feels Loke's muscles and is impressed. Loke says they're not done with Special K, so that feud is continuing, and says they know why Mikey Whipwreck wasn't here tonight. I'll note Mikey Whipwreck was also a no-show tonight. I don't think his wife was having a kid, so I don't know why he no-showed. Um... Carnage Crew says they're coming from Mike, Mikey Whipwreck. The crew pit uh, put over their upcoming Anything Goes match against the Texas Wrestling Academy crew, and they call Rudy Gonzalez 137 years old. Logue says hardcore isn't chairs and blood. It's just incredible giving everything he he ha- has for the fans after t- two years in WWE. Hardcore is Masada taking big bumps off the top through chairs and wanting to do it again. Hardcore is Loke selling shirts, announcing, refing, all in the same night to earn his spot in Team Extreme, and ECW going out of business right after. Hardcore is DeVito breaking his tailbone and getting up to go to work the next day because he can't afford not to, and then wrestling next week. Hardcore is not jumping off a bridge when they wake up next to their ugly wives. DeVito says on the next show, you're going to see Hardcore, and then he says, Tables and Blood, which I wrote is what Loke just said Hardcore was. Um... (laughs) They say again that they're still not done with Special K and will take their pills from them and give them a lesson in hardcore. So, well, usual Carnage Crew promo. Yeah, I disagree. I think this promo was great. Like, not DeVito, but Loke. I thought Loke was, like, I thought this was, like, a 
like legitimately excellent promo. Like like one of the best promo like obviously not as good as the punk promo, but one of the best promos in ROH history. I really feel that way. I thought like Loke's whole rant about what was and wasn't hardcore, it felt from the heart. I thought the delivery was good. I thought what he had to say was good. I think that he cut a really good promo. I think one thing you can say about Loke is if you could, something we can say having watched him right from the start in Ring of Honor is at this point, like when he when Carnage Crew first formed, it felt like Loke was kind of overshadowed by Devito. I think this point in the ring and in in on promos, like Loke has a lot more confidence now, and he's not like second fiddle to Devito. No, I thought like, Loke is like he's like the beating heart of the pro- of the team, yeah. and he's and like Devito's the crazy sidekick. Yeah, and if Lo- and if they're gonna be babyfaces, it's because of Loke. He feels earnest. He feels like he knows what he has to say. He's articulate. He's good in the ring. Like I. I think I'm very impressed with Loke. Yeah, it's almost like maybe they're starting to like the old, um, you know, cut the hair and, and, you know, lose your powers. Because it seems like once Loke started growing out his hair, he started to find himself. So That's right. Don't go bald. Uh, <laughs> we're, I, we cut back to the worst rave ever. Three quarters of the fans are gone. The ring crew's trying to take down the ring, but Special K chant get a get a special k chant going and refuse to stop raving one member does the worst stage dive ever off the guard royal falling maybe like six inches into a group of fans and we cut back to one of the final promos lots of cutting there's like it's a different kind of ring of honor show where i would say like what the last 15 20 minutes is non-wrestling like just cuts of the rave Cut to the promo. Cut to the rave again. Part of it is to make the rave seem longer than it actually was. Yeah. Um, so next we get another super in see every porn is no Samoa Joe promo. He talks about Paul London and he calls him both the shooting star and the fearless one, which I think both would have been good nicknames for Paul London. Like yeah. Joe should have been in marketing. Um, Joe says fear is a funny thing. It's one thing to do risks like off the top ropes to win matches, but fear is losing your breath and not being able to get it back. Fear is the tingle down your spine when you're dropped on your head. Fear is staying across the ring from Samoa Joe, and fear is what he'll know, what Paul London will know at death before dishonor. Joe tells Paul London to do himself a favor and listen to his fans, and please don't die. This was a short promo. I thought this was really clever, good, like clever wording and really great delivery from Joe. Yeah, I mean, Joe's getting good at these promos. This is a night of really good promos, I have to say, because I really did like that Harness You promo, and I thought this one was really good, too. So, so I, you know, I, like, we've said it a lot, but ROH is very underrated when it comes to the promos and angles department, because they had some good shit here. Like, Joe is so good at at this point already at being very like calm and collected, but the intensity is right below the surface. He's a character like, that like we know we don't see in wrestling, this character. And he has it down pretty close to Pat, even at this early stage. Yeah. Like he has the image of the champ and it's, it's not completely different from who he was before the champ, but like it really crystallizes very quickly. Once he gets the belt, like I, I'm not going to be the screamy guy. I'm not going to try and intimidate as much as I'm just going to act like I know I'm a killer. I don't have to get excited. Like I know I'm going to see you and I'm going to kill you. Like I'm yeah. just, it's sort of, I guess sort of like maybe patterned after ECW Taz, but without the anger, you know, it's just more of like, I'm the man. I'm intense. Don't fuck with me. 
And there's no insecurity to it. Like Taz yeah. was an insecure guy that felt like yeah. he had something to prove. Right. There's no chip on Samoa Joe's shoulder. He acts like he's the champ of WWE and has been for 10 years. Right, right, right. Exactly. Like I'm never going to – I'm not intimidated. I know what's going to happen. I'm so confident and you know, you can't get a rise out of me. Um, next week – and finally we end the show with – Gary Michael Capetta is outside a locker room and he hears arguing. He thinks it could be Key and Julius Smokes and he goes into the locker room, but one of Side's Homicide's New York crew, Benny Blanco, chases him back out and threatens to kill Gary Michael Capetta if he goes back in. The show immediately ends. I'll note this is another Ring of Honor show where they hype earlier in the show that you might see some crazy con- confrontation between two big stars and then it's a complete fart in the wind because they also did this with Samoa Joe and Christopher Daniels having a confrontation a couple shows ago that went almost nowhere and they do the same thing here to you know the whole night Gary is basically passing notes being like ooh Key and Smokes don't like each other and then you don't see anything yeah I mean obviously now you need to know don't trust ROH when they promote something that happens backstage because yeah. that's not where they're that's not where they have their best uh, stuff Apparently, although if I guess tonight buy, it possibly was. But if you buy a DVD, don't fast forward to the end if they promise something cool. Right, exactly. Um, so that was Wrestle Rave, which is 2003, the first of many Wrestle Raves. <laughs> Matt, what did you think of Wrestle Rave? There are a lot of Wrestle Rave moments. Um, the uh, the biggest, of course, being the Wrestle Rave that happened at the end. Um, now, I just want to mention something about the rave thing. Like, it's interesting because, like, the way they positioned it was, like, their big final angle was Special K taking out the Backseat Boys. And you sort of start to feel like, okay, maybe Special K is going to become, like, a big force in ROH, even though they acted like fools during the rave. But that doesn't really come to pass. By the, at the next show, they're basically in the same position they were in in the last show. You know, it's just – it's weird that they decided to end the show that way. Um, but I guess they decided it was, like, a payoff to an angle they'd been building up for a while, so they just wanted to make it happen. Um but I, what I think about WrestleRave is probably what I said about the last few shows. ROH is just good right now. Like, this wasn't their best show. It seemed like I liked the matches on average more than you did. But, you know, this wasn't didn't have, like, a bunch of, like, all-time classic matches or anything like that. But it's just good. Like, it has a lot of variety. It had really good crowd reactions for the whole thing. Other than the main event, the finishes were satisfying. Um, the wrestlers are over. The matches are fun. The vibe is fun. The angles were good. The promos were good. Um, so I thought this was really good. Like I, I just, just like really good in the way that the shows in general have been really good. Not really good in like a standout way. Although I do think that the uh, the main event is probably worth going out of your way to see. It's just like a very different kind of match and like exciting. Um, I would also argue that the world title match is worth seeing. It's short and to the point and really good. Obviously, the pro- the Punk promo is a classic. Um, Hey, if you get a chance to see that Carnage Crew promo, I would say you might be impressed by it. I, I think that they're they're just on a roll. Um, this what this isn't this isn't them at their best, but they're at a it's like an average level of really fun entertainment from two thousand and three ROH. Um, I I think I agree. I'm I think most of the matches on the show were only I would say above average, but not even quite good. But Everything, like you always say, like you say, and like I say, there's a lot of variety, and I think that main event is really good. Like, not quite, you know, best of the year potential on list potential, but really good. 
And I think this is a rare Ring of Honor show where not only is it if you're just in the vibe of watching each of these shows, is it a fun watch? But I think this is one of the rare Ring of Honor shows where I can actually recommend it for historical value. Like, I think between the punk promo and um, the the Dan Moth match and even – not that I would suggest going out of your way to see this, but like the first I would call it good Ring of Honor women's match ever. Like there's a lot of like kind of notable, hey, that's neat, memorable things that happen on this show that are more than just good match, good promo. Like you – I think, I think everyone should go out and see – the Dan Moth whole segment. I think everyone should go see that punk promo, although probably most of our listeners have se- have seen that. You know, I and I don't think there's a lot of indie wrestling shows where you can say, like, just on a historical value, you should go see this. Yeah, and um, yeah, and, and also on top of that, ROH is already at a point where they're just remarkably consistent. Like, they just have got something down. Like, it's actually going to be sad when we get to the next bad ROH show, because it's been a while. And obviously, there are other ones, and they will happen. And they'll probably happen in 2003. But it'll almost be a bummer, because they've just gotten to this point where they're just like... I don't want to say they're on fire, but they're just... They've just really got a solid foundation, and they just... They just... If you just plug the basics into the formula, you've got a damn good show with what they have at this point. There is a reason why people like me and you would um, buy every DVD and not skip shows, and, and p- there is a segment, a big segment of the cr- of the audience that would like want to watch everything in order. And I think it's that level of consistency they got in early two thousand three, where you felt like if you were if you were watching Ring of Honor eight or nine times out of ten, you weren't going to be let down. No. And yeah. th- there weren't a promotion you wanted to pick and choose. You just had faith that if I buy a Ring of Honor event at this point, I'm going to get a certain baseline of quality. Yeah, and they've been delivering, and it's yeah. it's very impressive. So the next show we will go into um, – well, first off, let me just do contact info because I forgot on the last show. Honestly, sometimes I forget. If you want to contact us, there's our email is through the years at gmail.com. Remember to spell – through with T-H-R-O-H. Um, you can contact us at Twitter with me at Trevor Dame and Matt at Mayor MGF. Pro Wrestling Only Message Board, we have a thread in the radio show and section. Same with Figure Four, Voices of Wrestling, ROH World. So anywhere you want to contact us there. Next time on the show, we will be doing one of the biggest shows we've ever done yet, both in terms of it's a four and a half hour show. And it'll, which will probably make it one of the longest podcasts we record. It was also the biggest crowd Ring of Honor had done up to this point. And although I always don't want to promise things because they might fall through, right now we tentatively have a pretty great first time guest lined up. So we will be covering Death Before Dishonor, Ring of Honor's debut in New Jersey, Paul London's final Ring of Honor match, I Might Cry, and a, bo- um, a bona fide supercard by ROH standards. Yeah. Jeff Hardy. We'll have something he has. He wrestles, makes his Ring of Honor debut, and it goes badly. Um, we have the dog collar match, Punk and Raven, with a big angle that happens afterwards. We have the final AJ and Red versus Briscoe's tag match. Just a ton of stuff. It's gonna be something. I uh, it might it might be a while before we record it because it will take longer to watch, but we'll yes. see. We will try to get yes. it out within relatively reasonable due time. Yeah, it might. It's going to be a big behemoth for us to wrestle to the ground, but I think it has the potential to be our biggest episode in a lot of good ways. So 
I want to thank everyone for listening and thank you so much as always for just downloading the show and recommending it and liking it and praising it. Like, thank you guys so much. Yes. Thank you, Gabe. Thank you, Gabe. And thank you everyone else. Good night.